2: Zumo Play.
4: Cast. it's 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 a podcast that you're listening to it's it could happen here it's the 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 the, the show where things fall apart and then you put them back together again and actually okay you know I really should have checked the calendar before I did before I tried to do this introduction where I referenced the thing that I, I'm saying came out last week but might actually have come out like no no, no okay okay I, I got it right I got it right I should never have doubted myself I uh, last week we did an episode about inflation and we told maybe half that story and the part of it that we didn't tell you know we 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 got through the the oh, most of the part about like you know what 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 this sort of theory of inflation that the people of strange developed we got through what it was what we didn't really talk about was what happened next which is a very very interesting set of sort of maneuvers that happened where this theory started spreading through a bunch of very disparate academic circles, and you know, sort of like ec- economic circles and different political circles that usually don't have anything to do with each other. But we're all, I don't know, taking taking things in very interesting directions and to talk about how 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 this sort of supply chain theory of inflation like spread through the worlds and all of this. Very, very interesting. Somewhat bizarre stuff that happened next. Uh, we once again have Steve Mann and John Michael Cologne, who are co-editors of Strange Matters. Uh, yeah, Steve, JMC, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah, glad, gl- glad, glad we could have you two back, and glad we get to talk mm-hmm. about the really, really interesting, somewhat strange uh, things that happened next. Which was, yeah, a lot of people started picking up. Your theories and starting to work with them. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about I guess like how that kind of first started and how people first started sort of coming to you for stuff.
5: Yeah. Um like last year so last year when um the first of these pieces came out, Notes Toward a Theory of Inflation, we got like a really good response in general from it and it was kind of provoking discussions between groups of um economists and like readers of econ stuff on twitter and stuff like that who otherwise wouldn't have really been talking to each other but suddenly having a different theory of inflation one that was like a lot different than what served like the people who thought it would be super transitory or the people who thought it was like purely a monetary phenomenon or something like that like having that option sparked good conversations and it eventually led to some writers approaching us who were sort of inspired by those conversations. And uh, particularly, a few of them really wanted to follow up on like specific key, imp- like either points from the paper or follow some of the implications uh, as far as they think they could take them. Um, so one such paper, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, just as a refresher, the original theory that is laid out in part one of this uh, this series that we're doing is essentially saying that um, inflation has a tendency to propagate along supply chains first and then through supply chain networks secondarily. And uh, so it's it's saying it's essentially that that's, that's how it propagates. It starts in supply chains. Um, things like bottlenecks along production processes have give the price setters who are people at companies socially acceptable reasons to eventually, if they need to raise prices and, but they, but that generally pricing managers refrain from raising prices unless that like every other lever they've pulled essentially has not worked. So like people took that theory and wanted to follow up on it. And so one author who did that was Alex Vicolo who approached us and they, he was essentially wanted to do an updated version of the pricing manager survey that um, we found really helpful in writing those initial pieces. So we, like uh, in my piece, on you know, sort of theory of inflation, I, I relied upon uh, like a wealth of pricing manager surveys that showed that where they asked these pricing managers under what circumstances would you raise prices and they sort of went through each scenario of that uh, over the decades, starting in the 30s and going into the 90s and 2000s in order to not have a replication crisis like we need more and more studies right like this is a that's that's a phenomenon across social sciences and elsewhere um, so you want to have good replication studies. One way to do that is to have an updated pricing manager survey that talks to like sort of modern corporations in the the 2020s so are they still concerned about some of the same things? Are they not? Are there innovations in pricing that we should know about? And so Alex Vecola, who's a financial journalist um, by trade, he went and interviewed some managers at uh, Walmart and other uh, big companies and, sp- and some smaller ones and found that like broadly speaking, a lot of the same issues are at play. So companies have cost plus market pricing as kind of their bedrock. And from there, they develop some innovations, such as like so-called dynamic pricing, <laughs> where they have the, uh, like if you're a larger company who knows that they are viewed as a price leader, you have some uh Leeway in responding to sales forecasts and changing your pricing like Walmart does with they have like everyday low prices, that type of thing. And if you're a grocery store and one of your competitors is Walmart, sort of on the flip side, you might start developing indexes of prices set by Walmart or like one of the other big, like behemoth chains, knowing how important they are to the overall supply chain network. And, and Knowing how important they are for the demand for groceries, like like if wherever Walmart goes, many people have no choice but to follow them in terms of their pricing schedules, and so that's another thing that is going on. Like people are developing just entire price indices of like Walmart, or Costco, or Sam's Club, or who have you.
4: Yeah, and that was something that's I think interesting in terms of like the. the the difference between the way that like economists think about sort of price and the difference between and how it's actually getting set, which is like a lot of it, a lot of it very much seems to be like, if you are, if you are like the largest company in a market, like if you are like Walmart, right, you have this incredible ability to sort of like, like you, you, you have this ability to like, like force people force your like downstream or like, I guess upstream suppliers to like sell it to you at low at lower prices because you have this enormous sort of like you know amount of buying power that like you know if you're like if you're like a smaller thing you you, you don't necessarily like you know like like so the, the same company will charge like another grocery store more for like the same thing because walmart walmart has an ability to sell it at a lower price than if I, if i'm remembering this right I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting strange looks.
6: Yeah, well, it's it's it, it's important not to mix up two separate things. One is Walmart's relationship to its suppliers and the other one yeah. is its relationship to its competitors, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, yeah, the yeah. the supplier bit, you were totally right on on the right track. It's like, you know, like people who supply Walmart with um with products, because Walmart is such a big customer, if you get the Walmart contract and you're a small producer or a medium-sized producer, like, you're set, right? Because, like, you know, then then you can basically just, like, you know, they can even be your only customer in many cases. But that comes at a cost, which is that you sell at the price that Walmart dictates. Otherwise, they'll just tell you to, to, yeah. to, to, to fuck off, basically. And, you know, it's not only price, it's also the, the quality. You have to hit the standards. And oftentimes what these firms that are, like, the big important firms, uh, so-called nuclear firms, in a supply chain do is that they set those standards like very rigidly and you have to be certified with them. So McDonald's does this, for example, you know, like all those poultry farmers or whatever, um, who supply the chickens for the chicken McNuggets, they have to go through this extremely rigid process in order to be able to qualify to be a McDonald's certified supplier or whatever, because that's how they keep the product standardized, even though they're not in-house, um, and then the other thing that you were alluding to, which is in Vocalo's piece, is the relationship to competitors. So obviously Walmart's able to keep things cheap all the time in their famous everyday low prices because because basically those they have economies of scale. You know, There's this notion – I think common sense for a lot of people, especially those who don't have a lot of business experience, is that the more that you make of something, the more expensive it's going to be. But actually it's almost the exact opposite. Any firm that has survived like over a period of time being able to make more and more of something has generally found ways of making more and more of the same thing using fewer inputs and less labor. Like, you know, and that's something that happens through automation, but it's also something that happens through administrative innovation and through um, – and sometimes through less than, than nice things, right? Through, through, through you know – Amazon warehouses where people aren't allowed to take bathroom breaks or through sort of like, you know, coercive measures that they can do because they've found a nice little spot in the economy that lots of people are depending on them and they can dictate terms. But whatever it is, you know, as firms get bigger, it actually gets cheaper to make more of their kind of thing. So – People in a bodega can't match Walmart's prices for everything from like hamburgers to detergent, right? Because for them, it's more expensive to produce or to acquire. So what they do instead, knowing this and they're able to survive, is that they do Walmart's price and then they do a markup over Walmart's price. So in the same way that like by themselves, they would do a markup over their costs. Walmart's costs are lower and they do a markup. So they do a percentage over Walmart's markup. And as long as it basically is something that's doable in terms of cost, they do that, which means that they're basically advertising themselves to customers as the slightly more expensive but more local, you know, more um – you know, more, uh, reliable or easier to get to. You can just walk to the corner store or whatever, you know, whatever conveniences they're kind of like justifying themselves with to the customer base. And in cities, this can be enough to keep, you know, small to medium sized, uh, you know, sort of retailers in business. Although in the suburbs, the competition is basically just all other oligopolistic firms on Walmart scale, like, uh, you know, Wegmans or, uh, in, in Florida, it'll be something like Publix, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, generally What Vokola was discovering was—I want to just emphasize Steve's point about replication. Like, you know, if if a lot of the supply chain theory depends upon a story about prices that most economists just don't believe in. Economists believe that supply and demand are automatically adjusting based on changing prices, and that those adjustments determine, in turn, how we spend and how we produce. You know, that's that's supposedly how everything works. They believe in this thing called the price mechanism. Uh, The supply chain theory depends upon a story where the vast majority of prices in the economy are a markup over costs or, you know, uh, beyond that, some kind of strategic decision being made in pursuit of a certain strategy. Um, But like, you know, if some studies had verified that, but then other studies refuted it, then you would have a situation like psychology where, you know, the psychologists are always saying all human beings really have a neck fetish. But then, you know, because some study of like some college students, you know, th- said this. And then six months later, it'll be like, actually, that failed to replicate this. It, it turns out that human beings don't have a neck fetish, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm being rude to psychology, but this is a real crisis that happened there called the replication crisis. Now, Fred Lee, the, the economist who kind of like started us along this Track, in his famous book, Post-Keynesian Price Theory, found 71 pricing studies, and they form an appendix called Appendix B in his book, which ought to be legendary, but it's not because all this stuff is very obscure. The 71 studies – from very different – like book-length studies from very different people with very different like political and economic commitments. Some of them are business school literature. Some of them are empirical studies commissioned by states or by corporations on how corporate management works. Some of them are by like Marxist economists. Some of them are by neoclassical economists. Like, And they all converge no matter what the biases of the, peop- of, of the people involved upon this same kind of similar cost plus administered prices model. Um, Vocolo writing – now in the present day, not in the period that Lee was talking about, which is roughly from the 30s to roughly the 90s, like, you know, he is talking about the 2020s. He just went out and started talking to pricing managers and capitalists and all this other stuff. And lo and behold, he found the exact same thing. So the 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 the, the evidence base, the empirical evidence base for the underlying basis of the supply chain theory is very, very sound. The ball is in other people's court in mainstream economist court who want to defend the supply and demand bullshit in and the price mechanism bullshit to to prove us wrong because frankly the the, the weight of the evidence is so strong that they're the ones uh, who have the um, who have to prove their case not the other way around you know that that the, the, the uh, what's it called when you when you've got the um, you know the, the, the I think the, that the presumption of, proof. of the burden of proof thank you <laughs> the burden of proof is on their side.
4: Yeah. And so yeah. something else I think is really interesting from that for color, piece pieces that like, you know, th- there is a bit in there about firms that try to do this sort of like, like in real time reacting to supply and demand stuff. And it's like Uber. And and if you look at Uber, it's like, OK, so Uber has a couple things. One, they don't have like the thing that they're like, they they don't really have a supply chain really a B. They don't make any money. They never make money. They will never make money. And the, other, the third thing that's really interesting about it is that, like, that kind of pricing, like, you know, if 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 you have a, some people who go in ideologically and are like, we're going to build an algorithm to, like, try to have pricing respond to demand or whatever. It, like, it fucking sucks and everyone hates it because it means that, like, you know, suddenly, like, when you actually need a thing, it's unbelievably expensive. And it it pisses people off. Like most most people who have to deal with actual like the normal things that a business do don't do, and the only people who do it are like the insane tech people who are like in in like in, in, I don't know. It, I almost want to call it like intensely ideological, and also assholes, and also don't make any money. Which is just, it, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, I, I think it's kind of a coincidence, but it is just very funny to me that, that the people who actually try to use the neoclassical like pricing theory, it sucks and everyone hates them.
5: Yeah. And, uh, uh Vicolo kind of summarizes like the several different, uh, pricing procedures that he uh, witnessed into just say like on both. On both determining your company's costs and determining what market markup you should have. So the cost plus markup, you need to, you need to figure out both of those pieces. It's anything but automatic. Yeah. It's a very manual process. And even I would, I would go so far as to say like Walmart has teams of tech people. Yes. But they're liaising heavily with the finance department and sales and marketing to determine what is an appropriate margin based on historical, like in industry and sub industry trends, and like what is our historical cost structure for each product down to the product level. And they have so many different products that they might actually say, well, because we're selling everything to everyone, maybe some things can just be what are called lost leaders and have a negative margin because they get people in the store and then those people are there and they see other things which have higher markups. And then they buy those, and then overall they've made a, a more of a profit because they use some things that have negative margin on them. And it's like it's a really complex process. And even if an algorithm is being developed by say by say Uber to um, like dynamically price things up and down based upon events like a baseball game or something that are going on in the city, so that they can get more revenue, that was still a peop- it was a group of people in a room in a yeah. very extremely manual process. Coding is extremely manual still. And like, uh, liaising with like sales, marketing, finance people all, all at once. Yeah. And yeah. What you, oh, sorry.
6: And, and the other thing is that it's like uh, supply and demand is a phrase that gets thrown around anytime that there's any kind of interaction between like the amount of people who want something and the amount of people and the amount of stuff that there is, right? Which is a lot of different situations. But the specific supply-demand price theory that's at the core of neoclassical economics is this price mechanism story whereby, you know, companies basically all make one thing. The price of that thing is not something that is really under their control. It automatically fluctuates based on demand, which I guess you can roughly measure as sales. And like the – and in turn, like what the price of that thing is determines how much they produce and how much of it people buy because people's buying decisions are in some fixed functional way and people's production decisions in some fixed functional way are tied to that price. Like if you want to create an algorithm. That includes as a consideration doing a discount when you haven't yet sold all the seats in an airplane, in the hopes that you'll get some last minute sales. Which, by the way, statistically is shown to not actually help that much. Those kinds of last minute sales and discounts. Uh, I, I mean, I suppose in a in a in a flight where there's a time limited thing, it might work better. But for a typical product, it doesn't move the dial very much in terms of sales, which is why Walmart pursues an everyday low prices strategy, uh, just keeping prices down in general so you don't do sales and discounts which don't move the dial much. But like, you know, that's a strategic pricing decision that you've chosen to make because you think that it might move the dial in some way and you experiment it with it and see if it works or whatever. That's not... The automatic law-like functional relationship that is supposed to exist, according to neoclassical theory, between supply, demand, and prices. People will say that the algorithm is about supply and demand, but that's not really how it works. That's It's, it's not the same thing as the theory, right? It's just a pricing system that takes into account, among many other variables, and usually not as the primary thing, whether or not, for example, uh, there is – available available slack in the in the you know in in what you're producing to be able to get some last minute sales if you do a discount or something like that like or like Steve was saying like you know there's a there's a game today so you can do surge pricing because people are going to you know that a bunch of people are going to 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 want to get in the game so you're basically just price gouging uh based on this opportunistically based on this event that's happening or whatever like like yeah you can do that and you can say that it's pricing that tries to take into account supply and demand but it's not the supply demand price mechanism of neoclassical theory and also as Vokolov like you know finds out it attempts to do this are very very mixed in their success at best you know basically people who are trying to do it are like Yeah, maybe it could work and then they try it and nine times out of 10, it doesn't work very well. So they go back to some variation on a cost plus model, you know, or a price leadership model or something like that. You know, the kinds of methods that Lee discusses. Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the customer goodwill that you kind of put at risk with these more dynamic pricing models is like often a little too risky, like even for big companies like Uber. Like there's been a backlash against Uber for doing that.
6: Absolutely. The only reason they can maybe get away with it has been because uh, they have access to infinite finance, but how long is that going to last? Yeah. Like
4: that, that, that's another thing that's interesting. Like, you know, this is, this is to some extent like a different economic question, but like, you do at some point have to ask the question, like to, to, to what extent can you learn things about the economy based on companies that don't have a revenue model or the revenue model is they will continue to be handed piles of money by like the same seven billionaires who they've conned and that's like a there's an interesting interplay of how dependent you are on actually making like actually having revenue be the source of like the continuing (laughs) existence of your company and how ideological you can be about running do
7: do (laughs)
6: <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's actually very funny that you say this because one of the people that uh, Vocolo talks to is this guy Cohen. Um, I can't find his first name right now, and I don't want to scroll up, but um, somebody whose last name is Cohen uh, is "quote unquote" more skeptical of the uh, of the dynamical pricing, and he says, "I think it's a sexy idea, and probably it has a lot of intellectually valuable pathways, except when it crashes into the sensibility of the customer." He said. <laughs> It could create a universe of very inconsistent prices across categories and time, which I don't think human beings are going to align to. These dynamic models need common sense judgment attached to them, which is not always necessarily available. Now, this is a very diplomatic statement by somebody who is formerly (laughs) of Sears, Canada. Now, I find this very funny because there's a kind of subtext here. Vocola doesn't get into it, but Sears, Canada, obviously kind of related to Sears, in the '90s, Sears had a CEO who was like this ultra libertarian. You know, yeah. <laughs> like he basically believed that the problem with the free market is that it's not free enough, right? At the height of neoliberalism, so he's really pissed off about the fact that inside the corporation there's no free market; it's all a planned economy. Yeah, um, you know, which is which is true. There's no there's no market exchanges in there. Like it's all allocations. Like okay, we have this goal, so we're going to allocate these workers to this place, and blah 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 blah. You know. And, and and uh, and you know, anything that the company owns, they just use it to pursue their goals. He wanted everything inside the company to have a price yeah. <laughs> so that everything could just be, you know, bought. And this is this kind of like mad scientist experiment done on this like very old American corporation. But somehow, I guess it was the 90s, you know, people were coked up on this kind of thing. They tried it. And it was a catastrophic failure. It's actually yeah. generally seen as contributing to the end of Sears as a as a major player in retail. Um, and it's like, like, so it shows. So I think that the fact that this person very diplomatically from Sears is like, I maybe mean, this doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I, I might be born of more experience than 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 not. You know,
4: yeah. Okay, we we have to go to an ad break but before we do that. I do, I want to tell one more insane ninety. Like people in the nineties really, really had market brain in a way that's like difficult to understand now and you, you can even see this kind of through obama like they really have market brain and like i think the most market brain thing anyone ever did was the 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 i think it was the army joint chiefs of staff brought in like a group of economists who were you know like who were doing the whole like okay we like how how can we make how can we use the market to make the army run more efficient and the first proposal they put down on the table is we're going to have each depart each like uh like each like section, like what's the tack 10 We're gonna have each branch of the military bid for control of who of who gets control of the nuclear weapons. And there's a bunch of just like five star generals sitting at this table, going like, "What the fuck are you guys talking about?" And they just kicked them out, and that and that was the end of, of like. Yeah, but that that was like like peak absolute peak nineties brain of like like these these people thought you could solve terrorism by like having futures markets on like where te- when terrorist attacks would happen. Like I, it was it, these people were wild. None of this stuff worked. Um, unlike the products and services that uh, you're gonna you're gonna now hear ads for. And we're we're back from these fine products and services. Uh, if you're if 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 the thing you are doing right now is you have your finger on the button, we are about to message Sophie about the fact that we have gold ads again. Like, please don't. Like, please leave Sophie alone. Oh my God. Uh, I think we we've gotten we've gotten a little we've we've gotten sort of into the weeds of, I guess, like the kind of research stuff that's been produced, but I wanted to move on, I think, to some of the some of the other like kinds of like I don't know, k- kinds of discourse and kinds of sort of work that's been produced out of this?
6: Yeah, so Vocola's piece, I think was uh, was very, very accomplished and it adds to this proud tradition of pricing surveys like you've been saying. but the um the piece that I would say ended up having the biggest impact in the sense that it really kind of started getting followed up on by a lot of people and it caught a lot of attention, was Tim Demetrios' piece. So a little about Tim. He's an economist uh, based in Australia, and I should remember the name of his university, but it was the University of uh, something, and it and it starts with W, and it's a well, very well, long name. Wollongong?
5: There, there we go. Yeah.
6: University of Wollongong, yeah. Um, and um, and he's a, uh, a, a, a political economist. He does a lot of stuff uh, pertaining to uh, kind of like – International relations type stuff, but he also comes at economics from a particular perspective. So, we mentioned last time that there's these, the, the orthodoxy in economics is this one school called the neoclassicals who believe in the supply and demand stuff, and along with a whole bunch of other dogmas. Then there's a bunch of dissident, heterodox schools, and there's a whole bunch of these. Um, and one of them is called the Capital as Power School, which is named after a book uh, called Capital as Power by uh, the, these uh, two professors called Bickler and Knitson, and, uh, and it has a lot of things to say about a lot of subjects. But, so Capitalist Power is a book that says a lot of things on a lot of different subjects, but at its core is the idea that what makes the capitalist system tick is the process of capitalization. Uh, And that that process of capitalization is controlled by certain people and their control over that process is the basis of the entire economic system. Um, That's very heady stuff. It tends not to have to do with what we're going to be talking about, but it informs the perspective that Domuzio comes from. Now, Domuzio saw – Steve's brilliant essay on the supply chain theory of inflation was very really inspired by it because there are certain affinities between the framework that we're coming from uh, in this kind of research and the fr- and the capital's power framework. They don't agree 100% on everything, but there's a lot of common ground there. So he basically hopped aboard to say, well, why don't we talk about interest rates? Because remember, the main upshot of Steve's uh, – of Fred Lee's administered prices – Theory And then then by extension, Steve's theory about inflation is that inflation is not about money, it's about prices. Um, And in order to understand inflation, you have to understand why people set the prices that they do and why prices across the economy will go up at any given moment, because it's people who set prices, not the market, not the money supply, and not any of these other sort of automatic general macroeconomic things. It's a microeconomic decision made by particular people within particular institutions with the ability to pull the lever on particular prices, right? So the interest rate is a price, you know, it's a, to, 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 to it's a very important price, too, because oh, we should okay, well, we
4: should we should back up for a second and explain what when when you say the interest rate, you should explain what that is,
6: because well, yeah, it's under <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's, That's that's totally exactly where I was going, because it, it, there's actually many interest rates out there yeah. in the economy. When we talk about the interest rate, what we tend to be talking about is the interest rate that is set at the central bank of the country that control like uh, of, of the currency under discussion right that is basically uh, an interest rate that sets the price for credit for loans in the rest of the economy and it's basically you can see it as a supply chain even though it's not a physical one and it's basically the main cost for banks that want to borrow you know and they then have to set a markup over that cost as the price for anyone who wants to borrow from them, which includes other banks, but also includes end consumers and firms. So that's basically. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, and Steve yeah, probably yeah, has a more nuanced it, <laughs> version of this. <laughs> but that's the that's the the basics. Yeah,
5: yeah, banks, just like any company, need to determine both their cost structure to the extent that they they are able to themselves, and their markup. And the markup is they like banks have costs just like anyone. Uh, One of their principal costs is the, the rate of interest that they pay on deposits of their customers in order to get them to, to get new customers in. Like that's one of their main services that they provide is uh, checking, checking accounts and savings accounts. And like, so how much interest are you, is a bank willing to set on its uh, savings account is like, an important decision. That's like part of its cost structure, but where people, if the federal reserve were to raise its federal, it's a, the federal funds rate, it's a principal policy rate up to what they have now, five and a half percent or so uh, when it was less than 1% only a year ago. uh, In order to compete with all of the other products, which are, uh, based upon this so-called risk-free rate of return that uh, the central bank offers that um, that governments use to like set the rate of things like uh, treasury treasury bills and stuff like eventually if you're a bank you have to start charging higher and higher interest rates sorry you have to start offering higher and higher interest rates on your savings accounts and likewise you need to like you need to start, charging higher interest rates on the products that are your actual money makers like mortgages and uh, home equity lines of credit and that sort of thing and so like the the cost so the cost structure of a bank will shift as the federal reserve is changing its policy rate and so too will its margin over time as it competes with other banks for like a narrowing pool of qualified mortgage applicants. And also for people who are willing to shop around for dip- for where to keep their deposits in a way that they previously they weren't because there was no sort of differential in interest rates at all. It was just being held steady.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So. The, the the key thing to understand, and by the way, up to now, Steve and I have been describing what we regard as the real world, like everything that we've just described, we, we can see it in action, like in the world, right? Like if the Fed raises its interest rate effectively what that means is that this whole supply chain of people lending to other people who lend to other people who lend to other people, the cost of lending has essentially increased, which will eventually lead to a rise in the cost in the cost of lending to people downstream until for end consumers, which is basically like firms and households trying to get a loan from the bank, those loans are going to be more expensive. And conversely, if the Fed's interest rate goes down, those prices will tend to go down as well.
5: Um yeah. If you but want- like, crucially, none of it is just automatic.
6: That's yes, absolutely true. Yeah, there's even a,
5: there's- just just because it's a bank doesn't mean it's any different than the story that Vicola was laying out for retailers.
7: Hmm,
6: that's exactly right. The, the The Fed's rate is a very important rate because it's basically the first. Uh, the first one in this chain, and it's a cost for pretty much everybody who's doing business in dollars. But that doesn't mean that it in some simple way just controls everything else. You can hope that it controls if you're if you're the central banker. Um, but of course, all these firms are making their own decisions based on their own reasons. Um, so you know they, they can make all sorts of decisions based on their priorities and based on uh, like like all sorts of things. Now. Uh, by the way, if you want the more detailed version of this story that actually talks about the different agents at each step of this process in much more detail, you should check out Perry Merling's work on this. And there's even online uh, online lectures that kind of get into the nitty-gritty, uh, which I have absorbed and then since completely forgotten the details of, so I would need to watch them again to actually be able to name the names. But the point is that so far, so real, right? Now, here's where things get a little BS. Remember that. The mainstream theories of inflation are all basically descended in their DNA, even though they've been moving further and further away from it, from the old school quantity theory of money. The idea that the amount of money in the economy basically determines the price level. The more money that there is circulating, the less that money is worth because there's too much of it, so the price of it goes down. And the price of money basically determines like how much your money is able to buy. Now, people have been moving away from that towards theories that get more realistic but still retain the basic structure where the money supply is the main thing that matters. And they'll say, for example, that – It's the amount of money circulating in people's pockets relative to the amount of goods being produced such that if too much money is chasing too few goods, like there isn't enough supply to meet the demand. And that causes something, although people disagree on what, that causes prices to be bid upwards. Um, And that's called the demand pull theory. It's the dominant theory that most economists – classical mainstream economists that you talk to today – will will uh, will peddle to you. The ones who are not orthodox monetarists, they still believe in this, which means that they still think that you have to, when there's an inflationary event, you have to attack the money supply. Uh, now, from them, from their point of view, it doesn't have to do with the absolute amount of money circulating. It has to do with the amount of money in people's pockets relative to the amount of stuff that can be bought. So if there's too much money in people's pockets, how do people use their money? They spend it on goods and services that are produced by firms. Um, so if you reduce that amount of money, that basically the only way that you can do it is by putting people out of work, right? You know, you, you, you buy, uh, because then they don't get the wages, that, which they would have spent on stuff that, you know, the factories and Walmart and everything else, the agriculture and whatever, uh, all the stuff that, that gets made, um, the goods and services. Now, they think that if you raise the interest rate, It makes the cost of finance more expensive. Uh, Some firms are depending on finance. So if that cost increases for them, they're going to go under. And when they go under, people get unemployed. When people get unemployed, they have less money in their pockets, which means that they're spending less, which means that some other firms go out of business and then those people go unemployed. Now, the full version of this is like the crash of 2008 or 1929, where suddenly a whole bunch of people are unemployed and a whole bunch of companies are empty. They don't want to go all the way with that, but they want to kind of get part of the way to that. They want to put the squeeze on the economy and get some companies put out of business and some people unemployed on the dole so that people don't have money in their pockets, so that the supposed pressure of too many people spending money – on goods that are not being produced enough to meet that demand, the demand pressure goes down. So therefore it equilibrates and inflation prices, uh, inflation ceases because prices go down too. Because the idea is that there's a law-like relationship between demand and prices such that if demand goes down, the price will go down. The actual explanation for this is, will vary depending on, The thing they basically accepted as a religious orthodoxy and then different economists justified in different ways. But that's why they're trying to raise interest rates so that basically people get thrown out uh, of work and that will cause prices magically to go down. Now, as we discussed, the actual cause of the inflation was an exogenous shock based on like the chip shortage, the labor shortage and key things like agriculture, the container shortage and the war in Ukraine – Uh, causing increases in grain prices that have caused cost increases that firms tried to hold off price increases as long as they could, but then they couldn't. And then they traveled down the supply chain and a whole bunch of prices across the economy went up. So we know that because we have looked at the news stories that, you know, and talked to people at, at these different companies. And by we, I don't mean strange matters. I mean like, you know, journalists or whatever. And like, you know, that's what they say. And yet, nevertheless, they're trying to make the interest rates go up to throw people out of work and partially induce a recession in the hopes that that will drive prices down. But and they DeMuzio, can't even
5: get that right.
6: That's right. They haven't actually been able to get
5: unemployment. <laughs> they haven't been able to get unemployment up either. So it's yeah. like it doesn't work exactly. in either direction.
6: Exactly. Well, and, and what's really funny is that DeMuzio basically says, OK, why do people believe this? They believe it for a lot of reasons, but – they think that it worked in the '70s. That's the myth, right? You ask Larry Summers, "Why do you think this shit will work?" And Larry Summers will say, "Well, you might not like it." And I think he actually said things like this, like a couple weeks ago: "You might not like it, but this is how we got out of the crisis of the '70s. If we hadn't done the Volcker shock, which is basically the same thing—they raised interest rates through the up the Yazu. Um, you know, like like we and hadn't induced that unemployment or whatever, prices would never have come down." But you see, DeMunzio did something that you're not supposed to do, which is that he actually checked up yeah. on the relationship between, <laughs> between interest rates and prices. And what he found was uh, that basically there's either – I, I, the way that I explain his essay is that there's a strong version of his argument and there's a weak version. The weak version is definitely true. The strong version is speculative. So he charted it and he found that there is absolutely no inverse relationship between – Interest rates and prices. They raise interest rates. They raise interest rates. The prices keep going up. <laughs> They're not coming down, right? And the prices don't start to go down until oil, because remember the oil shock caused by the uh, the war in the Middle East between um, Israel and um, wow. and uh, and Egypt and a whole bunch of other places caused OPEC to raise their prices in order. For yeah, it's okay. I, I'm reasons. gonna I'm going I'm gonna I'm gonna point in a thing, which is that it the, the
4: actual story behind that is slightly more complicated, which is that like okay, so. To 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 be completely one hundred percent accurate about this, OPEC had a meeting where they decided to raise prices, and then the war started, and then like like two weeks afterwards, and then they kind of tacked their explanation on to the back of the price increase they'd already decided on.
6: Oh, okay, you know Which is, yeah. I- so
4: th- this 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 is the thing that like I don't know. There 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 was a uh, there was an oil historian who went back and like spent a bunch of time looking through the records of OPEC and shit and try to figure out what the actual sequence of events was but it it, it it is true that like one of the things behind keeping OPEC together so that it could increase the price of oil was like the like what was their sort of solidarity in the face of the opposition of the war but also it's slightly more complicated than that and I want to I want to I want to put that on the record just because I uh, the oil knowers will get mad at us if we
7: Yeah, Yeah. although
4: that that that's the version of it that like like ninety nine percent of accounts will give you. It's just slightly not quite exactly what was happening.
6: Yeah, I gotta read read that book.
4: Yeah, I think it was. God, I'm trying to remember what book. I I I I think it was in. I think it was in Carbon Democracy. Maybe I'm like eighty percent sure. Sorry, I I read like four books about oil and coal in like incredibly rapid succession, like several years ago. And sometimes I have trouble remembering exactly which one, which thing is from. But yeah. Although I, I, I want to say, sorry. I, I guess I, I want to say one other kind of interesting thing about that that makes specifically trying to use the interest rates arguments about like. It, I think it is it is pretty clear that raising the interest rates directly would like did not immediately did wasn't the thing that brought down prices. I think there's like an interesting. There's like a weird thing going on there, too, because the like almost like when when economists tend to look at this, what they tend to look at with the interest rate rises was what was happening in the U.S. economy. And the other yeah you know, the other thing that the Volcker shock did was it raised the interest rates on it raised it raised the interest rates on all of these adjustable rate loans that like all of these countries like all over the world had. And those economies got fucking obliterated. And that actually, absolutely. I think, I, th- I think actually, that there there is an argument that like my, my my argument would be, I think it it kind of probably prevented prices maybe from going up more, but it did that because it it prevented any more OPEX from forming and just like absolutely annihilated any kind of political movement to like have pricing be set by mm. like raw material producers rather than by like countries that do, that do production. And th- th- this is a kind of like separate thing, but like th- this is, I I think. I, I think the moral of my story with this before we get back to sort of like the the, the I, I don't know the 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 other arguments about this is that, like that moment was such a fucking shit show. There were so many things going on. It's so complicated. it is absolutely nuts to try to base literally your entire theory about how you stop inflation by raising interest rates on one event in like probably the most complicated economic crisis any like we've ever had. and yeah. Yeah, and because like it 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 it, it did like the Volcker shock did a lot of things that weren't what Volcker or not not necessarily what not what Volcker was trying to do, but it did a lot of things that aren't what economists talk about when they talk about what the Volcker shock did. Like it, it, had all of these incredibly like powerful political ramifications that they just don't put in the equations because it doesn't. Like how how do how do you mathematically model like the collapse of the like, like the, the collapse of the non-aligned movement and like third world movement. Like you, you, can't right, and so they just sort of like wave their hands and pretend that it was just like directly it caused it caused more unemployment. And the unemployment brought the inflation rate
5: down. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the global effects of the Volcker shock. as like you have uh, um, countries who are dependent upon USD finance uh, suddenly are facing a much stronger dollar. So, if they didn't already have dollars, that's a huge problem.
4: Yeah. Like, and, and again, it, yeah. And again, also just like, like just literally the interest rates on their loans like increased by like 20%. And that's like, you know, like you, <laughs> you're, it doesn't really matter what your economy is. You can't, it, I don't know. It's, it's unbelievably difficult to survive something like that.
5: Yeah. on On the Forex dimension and just on regular lending terms in dollar lending, anyway. It's going to get way tougher. Yeah. They even domestically, like, Demetio superimposes the oil price onto the inflation, and like the the inflationary crises of the '70s and early '80s. It was a double. It was a double uh, yeah. dip, if you remember. And so, like, the first time the Fed chairman who preceded Paul Volcker uh, was blamed for not raising interest rates during an inflationary crisis because the emerging theory said that maybe that would be a good idea. And so, like, the monetarists had, like, their one moment after that to say, like, they where they became uh, more than simply an academic movement and became, like, briefly hegemonic with, with the, the Volcker uh, interest rate rise that happened to, like, in, in 1975 or so, when the oil price was about $15 per barrel. That's when inflation and the oil price start to move closely in conjunction with each other, going into 1980, which is also when the interest rates are being raised, more like give or take nine to eighteen months or so. And the economic historians, the neoclassical economic historians, will um, forget about the supply chain pressures like the oil price, which has nothing to do with the Fed and uh, that happened in this in- inflationary, when oil prices were up to like one ten. During our current inflationary crisis, this exact debate w- debate was taking place again. Yeah, which, yes. which like, where it's like, I mean, there's like all of the prices that the Fed has no control over. It's like, well, if you ignore those ones, then actually our theory is like kind of getting close to being right.
6: And the Here. worst part, <laughs> the worst part is that the interest rate correlates positively with yeah, prices. This is the so, insane like, thing. <laughs> so like so like so like the interest rate when it's high theory expects that prices will be low. But actually and, and 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 like even if you adjust for like a delay where maybe like the prices get low afterwards, like no, that's not what happens. It's like the interest rate goes up and prices go up too prices go down and the interest rate goes down, <laughs> you know, like, like, like yeah. it's
5: like, yeah. It's and this, like, it, and, and Demuccio's like, um, at heart when he, eventually he superimposes oil price, fed funds, federal funds rate and inflation all in one chart. It's just like this epic wave of all three going up at once. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. almost in lockstep and then oil goes back down and then interest rates go back down and then prices go back down.
6: <laughs>
5: no, yeah, actually, I think prices first before interest rates. Let me see. I, I, I can't uh, remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, inflation yeah, yeah. crests like yeah. somewhat concurrently with the federal funds. And then um, the uh, oil price eventually falls like like shortly thereafter
4: yeah and and this this gives, this gives you a disaster right because you like okay so the the you you will get neoclassical economists who are like oh my god oh no all these idiots are saying that uh, uh, i in, increasing the increasing the interest rate actually increases prices it's not what happening it's like you, you get into this mess where you, you have to figure out the the neoclassical explanation right is that like okay well the, the reason it looks like the fund rate increasing increases prices is because you do that in in response to the inflation happening right but like you can also just very easily look at this as like a panic index, basically. Like yeah. where, you know, it's like, okay, well prices go up and then the Fed panics. And so they they raise their rate. It doesn't and, and, and you know, it like it, it's it's this is one of those things where like the, the neoclassical economists have invented a mechanism that like Allows them to explain their own actions in a way that's plausible enough that they can call anyone that they've they've gotten enough hegemony. money that they can say anyone who says they're wrong is just like nuts.
7: Oh, but yeah. and
4: they're they, it, right. they're not right. And also, it's 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 entirely possible that not only are they not right, they're literally perfectly exactly wrong. Yeah, and that yeah, they have which-
5: they trot out the st- like the. The econometric jargon, long and variable lags. When people say, when are interest rates going to cause unemployment to rise? When are interest rates going to cut down on inflation by themselves and not some other supply chain phenomenon? And they say, like, well, the monetary transmission mechanism has long and variable lags, which means that like nine to 18 months from now it will settle down and then we'll know it's from interest rates. Trust us. Right. And the thing <laughs>
6: is that like even their purported explanations are demonstrably false. So theoretically, the mechanism by which this happens is that the monetary – the, the the money supply will go down. Well, yeah. M2 is our best estimate for the monetary – for the money supply uh, and it's not even a perfect one. You know, interest rates go up, interest rates go down, M2 keeps going up. And this is over the course of like from the 70s to the 90s, you know, like, yeah, like, it, like yeah, I'm going to get another so- graph of Demencio's.
5: That's another important point that like the the money – it doesn't even get the money supply down.
6: Yeah. So like it's quite questionable whether this interest rate adjustment thing even works at all on its own terms because – all the evidence says that there's at least, and this is what I mean by the weak version of Democcia's yeah. argument, that all the evidence shows that there's at least no relationship between interest rates and the price level. That there is like no relationship whatsoever. It basically just is useless for controlling prices one way or the other. Um, the uh, now the strong version of Democcia's argument <laughs> is he he takes the he takes the 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 fact that interest rates track prices very seriously, and he's like, well, what if Making finance more expensive actually raises business costs, and businesses choose to respond to it by raising their prices. You know, what if you what what if you actually by raising the interest rate are contributing to inflation? Now, this is this is kind of how we framed the whole article in our title. Editors make titles, not not um not not writers do interest rate hikes worsen inflation and i remember showing this to some of my friends who were finance bros and they were like what what are you talking about this is a crazy idea um but like it makes a lot of sense because if you look at things as a supply chain at the very least rising financial rising cost of loans would be a higher cost for at least some businesses theoretically they could respond to that by raising their prices now in actual fact it probably, at least my solo opinion is: this is a small effect, if it exists at all. It's much more plausible that there is simply no relationship. Yeah, and the general price level. Yeah, and that, and
4: that, and that, like the the fact that they're correlated is just a, is just a panic index on the on the, on the on the on behalf of the Fed that they just get scared and do this thing, and it does, it, has, it has no effect. But like you know, they they've got to press the panic
5: button. Yeah, I think I'm. For a variety of reasons I I think I'm a weak-form Demutsiist on this point. <laughs> uh I think like like especially these days there's so many other like a relatively small percentage of commercial and business credit is variable rate to begin with these days. More of it is fixed rate and like especially for more well, f- certainly for mortgages. Like uh it's it's like 80% plus approaching 85% even uh, fixed rate, which will not be affected. And then businesses have other so many other means of liquidity other than loans these days, particularly the like medium and large scale businesses like the you know you can go to the capital markets, private equity or the stock market, and get the funding you need that um, in ways that don't or don't depend upon what the federal funds rate is doing or only weekly depend upon it. Yes. So there's just like, there's so many other liquidity sources, especially like in the last 30 years or so. Like, well, since, since the Volcker shock, basically they've like all of these like private equity and other capital markets methods for liquidity have opened up. And a good deal of the debt, a good deal more of the debt uh, as a percentage of total debt is fixed rate. So like on that basis, I'm like, all right. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't uh, increase prices, but there is, at the very least it's like non-correlated. This
6: caught a lot of people's attention. Like once Demitsia put this paper out there, this is one of our most successful essays uh, because. It got picked up by a bunch of folks. I mean, Investopedia uh, cited it as a source, even though they <laughs> called us a blog and not a magazine. Um, you know, like like a, um, it, it ended up being taken up by another capital as power influenced economist Blair Fix, who found yet more empirical evidence that there is no relationship whatsoever between in, in interest rates and and like the general price level. Um, you know, and to the extent that there is, it's only because you induce a recession, you know, that, that that puts people out of work, in which case you've basically, you know, you've in order to deal with a paper cut, you've cut off your hand, right? And yeah. and even then, like they can't they can't reliably get unemployment up, you know, by raising rates. So like what like what use is that even if you accept that mechanism? So they found more evidence and they got even more attention. Corey Doctorow, the uh, science fiction writer and futurist and kind of left wing uh, all around uh, public intellectual, he uh, found both Domitio's study and Blair Fix's study and was like really excited about it. And after that, it really took off. It started getting debated all over the place. There's a heterodox economics international organization called Rethink Economics, which is all about like, you know, in, inciting pluralism in the discipline. And in their Australian blog, because they're all over the world, um, an economist called Matthew Harris um, you know, uh, took up took up the controversy and basically sided with uh, with Demuncio, Uh like and uh, J.W. Mason writing in Barons uh, also basically uh, sided with us uh, in an essay called "The Fed Can't Fine Tune the Economy." J.W. Mason's a very important heterodox economist who's often on the cutting edge of a lot of these kind of theoretical developments. Interestingly, the, the, the first fellow, though, uh, Matthew Harris uh, at Rethink Economics, he actually found a study which I was not aware of, which is why I love these when, – when we started all these conversations all over the place, people dug up stuff that we didn't even know about. There was a study done by the National Bureau of Economic Research by two professors from the University of Chicago. But notably, they were not University of Chicago economists. They were in the University of Chicago business school. And as many people have pointed out, uh, you know, capitalists started business schools because economists are basically just propaganda, but like, you actually also need people who know how the world actually works in order to run your companies. So that's why economics and business schools are two separate schools. Yeah, this (laughs) this is a
4: real, this is like a real, like, I remember this on campus. This is like, this is a real thing where like, if you're, if, so the the business school, if I'm remembering correctly, the business school is like, is most, I think it's, I think it might only be a grad school for so let me let me look this up yeah that was, that was my memory of it yeah so so th- this is a real thing because be- be- because the university of chicago doesn't have an undergrad business program you get people who want to do business who go into econ and the econ people fucking hate them because they see them as like like they 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 they, they see them as sort of like like these like inferior like fly by night people who don't care about like the sort of deep like the deep math and, like, the deep sort of, like, you know, like, intellectual, like, political pursuit of economics. They just want to, like, go be a business person. And this has really interesting effects because it means that, like, you know, like, the business school – I guess it's not like the business school is, like, like, a bastion of leftists or whatever, but they don't agree on stuff a lot because they're, like – like the, the University of Chicago economics program it it produces basically two things it produces like a bunch of people who go on to be investment bankers where you don't actually need to know how a firm works at all uh and then it goes on to produce a bunch of people who become economists and so like its its actual sort of ideological purpose is 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 specifically it's it's a school that trains other economists right it's a school that teaches like the ruling class what to think whereas the business school is like the school that te- and th- this is like this is a very 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 explicit it's it's something that like when you're there you can like watch like in practice the fact that these aren't the same thing and the fact that like you know they're 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 going to produce different conclusions because you know the the, the like be, because like be, be, because they're actual like purpose is different one is ideological the other one is like making money
6: yes and 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 this is a great case study of it because these folks at the business school um their names are uh Niels, Niels gormson and killian huber uh they actually went and asked companies what they do when credit gets more expensive now according to the theory and this is the most sophisticated theory the theory that people at the fed will tell you which is you know you might need to put a few drinks into them first but you know it's like we have to induce a partial recession in order to make it so that people have less spending money in their pockets and prices get bid down right theoretically the mechanism by which this works at the individual firm is that the firm sees that the cost of capital goes up and they invest less you know or just outright go out of business right um but in fact future investment is only weakly correlated to the cost of capital because of the limited transition into discount rates you know in other words like basically there is no real effect <laughs> so yeah. if go around and do yeah, business com- service
5: mm. sorry go ahead companies yeah uh, they do a a good amount if not perhaps most of their capital investment from cash on hand before going, before seeking out finance.
4: Yeah. And that, and that, Absolutely. and that like, and that means that it doesn't have an effect.
5: And then if, even if you need financing, there are non-debt finance, so there's like equity finance, either yeah. private or public that you have as an option aside, alongside the debt options.
6: Exactly. So we go from like a situation where we published this article in 2022, right? And it's. Got a title that for a mainstream economist, even a very sophisticated one, is unthinkable. Like, do interest rates, hikes, you know, uh, cause inflation to get worse or even just don't matter for inflation? But then suddenly, like, you have a bunch – once it gets taken up by a larger discussion, you have a bunch of quite reputable people saying the exact same thing, citing us directly. And even in one case – Six months after our article comes out, lo and behold that a certain little-known economist writes in The Guardian, um, in fact, raising interest rates could do more harm than good by making it more expensive for firms to invest in solutions to the current supply constraints. The U.S. Federal Reserve's monetary tightening has already curtailed housing construction, even though more supply is precisely what is needed to bring down one of the biggest sources of inflation, housing costs. Moreover, many price setters in the housing market may now pass the costs of doing business onto renters. You know, so in other words, like maybe higher interest rates can actually induce price increases as the higher interest rates induce businesses to write down the future value of lost customers relative to the benefit of higher prices. To be sure, a deep recession... You know, parenthesis, like the kind of they're trying to induce. Uh, that's my parenthesis. Uh, back to the quote A deep recession would tame inflation, but why would we invite that? You know, uh, Jerome Powell and his colleagues seem to relish cheering against the economy. Meanwhile, their friends in commercial banking are making out like bandits now that the Fed is paying uh, 4.4% interest on more than $3 trillion of bank reserve balances, blah, 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 blah. Now, this little-known economist writing for The Guardian is Joseph Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize (laughs) in economics. Now, does he cite our article whose talking points he's basically going through point by point? No. Does he cite any of the better-known places that cited us that are heterodox? No. No. He basically presents it as if it's his own idea. Now, maybe he did have this idea six months after we started a Stinglitz conversation. Singlets has not about had an idea circles.
4: in like Singlets has not had a single idea in like 15 years. Like that man oh. <laughs> that, that, that that man is a transparent <laughs> medium through which the stuff that he reads appears on a page. I'm 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 gonna be mean. I'm I'm sick I'm sick of
7: Stinglitz <laughs> doing this
6: bullshit. <laughs> and you know the worst part is like, you know, this is something that happens a lot. There's an orthodoxy that says certain things that are nonsense. The heterodoxy goes through the hard work of, like, figuring out the reasons why it's not true and presenting an alternative model. It's denied at first, but then increasingly it's just plagiarized, you know, perhaps accidentally, probably not, Uh, you know, like, like, and then it's presented as if actually this is what the theory has always been all along you know, and like, how can anyone think differently? And it's this, it's this unfortunate thing, because since the the neoclassicals control the discipline, they control advancement through the ranks of the economists. So they're always wrong, and never right, but they're never punished for it. And they control all the levers of who gets to be an economist. So it's this sort of like continual, sad, unfortunate thing. But on the bright side, we were right. We were right early. A bunch of people picked it up and our talking points ended up making it to very, very distant and well-regarded places to the point where now yeah. it's it's a viable alternative that exists out there in the world in terms of like – you know why keep raising rates? It's not doing any good. It could even do bad, and that's a talking point that I don't think would have existed if it hadn't been for Democio's research, which depended entirely upon the supply chain theory of inflation framework that Steve developed out of Fred Lee's work, which is basically a research program that now the magazine has put out there in the world, um, that uh, and and is continuing to build up on that that actually makes it make more sense.
4: Yeah, and I I want to just sort of like take a second to highlight like how impressive it is that this happened because like again like like a year and a half I even like 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 even like I don't know, even like a year ago right for the entire time I have been alive if you tried to say that raising interest rates raises inflation like. People would have thrown bananas at you, like like volleys of tomatoes. Like you, they they would have like like you would have, you would have gotten 16 contracts <laughs> to be a professional clown. Like it this was this was a thing that like you could not, you couldn't even like suggest this. And, you know, like within a pretty rapid span, suddenly like Stinglitz is being like, huh, I want this, maybe this is a plausible thing. And it's like, oh my like, I don't know. I I I think it's I think it's it's really. It's really impressive watching how fast, I don't know, like, how how fast the combinations of, like, reality and having an explanation of reality that actually, like, lines up with it has been able to change, like, has has been able to actually just sort of, like, change what the discourse at, like, the highest levels of power and sort of, like, what what has actually been happening in, in the economy, like, has shifted. And that's wild, like, I I would not have guessed that 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 was a thing that was even remotely possible. And and yet we are now here.
5: Yeah. The the Overton window has shifted so far that, like, the idea that interest rates just have, don't seem to have any discernible effect upon the price level is kind of like becoming the base case. Yeah. Yeah.
6: <laughs> so yeah. like.
5: The entire, yeah, the entire spectrum has shifted to where it's like, you can be a strong form Demetrius and have like, uh, I'm starting to use that phrase now, by the way. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, okay, people won't be throwing a ton of, they'll still throw some things at you, but like, it's, it's like manageable now. (laughs) I mean you can always point
6: to that argument from authority,
5: but Stiglitz
6: says it might be so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like and yeah. then Stiglitz, yeah. who could question Stiglitz? <laughs> he won the Nobel Prize.
4: <laughs> really weird Nobel Prize, too. Can,
6: <laughs> we, yeah, can we do can we say a bit about the Nobel Prize? I've been I've been yeah, containing yeah, myself, but I this. really want to this is a whole but, Oh god. <laughs> the, the 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 so-called Nobel Prize in economics is not actually the Nobel Prize in Economics. It's no. that there's Nobel prizes in science and in you know uh, literature and all this stuff that's administered by the Alfred Nobel Organization and and the, and the fund that he left and whatever. This started in the '60s, like I think some seventy years after the Nobel started, or something like that. And it was started by the Swedish Central Bank to imitate the Nobel Prize. So technically it's the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics, you see. And it's and it's and it's just it's basically like peeling off the skin of the face of the Nobel Prize and then wearing it, you know, and saying, We're we have a Nobel Prize too. But it's and totally fake. basically <laughs> it's not a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Um, you know, <laughs> and they did this specifically. There's a historian of um, of, of economics. Uh, oh, my God. What the hell is his name? Um, the uh, it's it's the it's the more heat than light guy. He's. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, I cite him in the Fred Lee thing. And I can't oh, hear um, remember oh, I his name. I phil Murawski! That's the guy! Yeah, okay, so he actually, like, went and, like, studied the origins of it, and it turns out that they specifically did it as a scheme to only give the Nobel Prize to people who are basically, like, neoclassical economists, um, and they mostly have, so sometimes they've diverged, but mostly they've done it to very reactionary economists, in order to promote neoclassical economists in Europe, because it was stronger in America than it was in Europe, and... In order to promote the idea of central bank independence, which is a fancy term for uh, – you know, the, the, a central bank should not need to operate under a political uh, – a democratically controlled you know, legislature that says actually we don't want more unemployment because that would be bad. So don't do that. Like instead they should have independence, the independence that allows them to technocratically decide that it's time for people to get out of work. You know, and, and and that kind of thing. So um, you know, that's that's the story of the Soquel Nobel Prize. It's really the fake Nobel. So yeah, which, I always, which, I always which, call it the fake Nobel.
4: <laughs> yeah, which is also really funny if you talk to other people, like specifically one of one of the things that like happened to me when I was in university was like I knew a bunch of people who were like really, really good at math. Like one of my friends was like 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 actual genuine prodigy was doing like like was doing like like graduate level like math in high school. And if you talk to these people and you talk to like math professors about the Nobel Prizes, they like they will like yell about it for like 20 minutes because the math is so bullshit. It's like, yeah, this guy is like, the, the, like the, the math involved in these Nobel Prizes are like they figured out two plus two equals four and they gave them like this fucking fake Nobel Prize. You, you look at like the Fields Medal and it's like. I don't know. Like it's 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 really nonsense. All the math people are really mad about the fact that the econ people think that they know math because they don't. And the consequence of this is you get these like you get people handing out Nobel prizes for saying shit like the economy can't miss like the market can't miss price like an at like assets that are like the price of houses and then the the entire housing market immediately implodes because it was all mispriced. It's 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 a disaster. It has been. I don't know. We we should uh, everyone at all times should be doing anti fake Nobel Prize <laughs> propaganda against the economics Nobel Prize because it's 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 fake and bad, you know, and we should all say it more.
5: Uh, you know, there's in on the heterodox side of things, there's some really promising uses of mathematical economics to create like input output matrices, yeah, and to model like do an I O model of the economy that um. The math is very much subservient to empirical data that is coming in that trains the model. And then like, like so much of economics is, well, data fits, data fits the model, data fits the model like over and over again, when it should be the other way around.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Does the model fit the data? Because if it doesn't, then you got to throw it out. Like this whole like raising interest rates is going to control prices bullshit. When has that even happened? Cause theoretically it happened in the seventies, but then you look at it and yeah. the data doesn't tell you that story. So you know, but, then, but do they throw it out? No. Uh,
5: um, call, like brief brief callback to um, Fredley's table. Uh, table B was it?
6: Oh yeah, appendix B. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: Uh, yeah I th- is the Blinder study in there? I forget. Yes,
7: yes, yeah. it is. Oh that,
5: that, yeah, that's like an instance. Story. That's an instance where uh, Alan Blinder is a neoclassical economist who. Like he messed up and did real science. (laughs) (laughs) And what he found was, was the administered price theory.
6: Yeah. He made made the terrible mistake of thinking that his bullshit theory would be vindicated. And then it turns out that it was not.
5: (laughs) Yeah. There's just like the the, the history of intellectual thought for economics is like replete with examples where they kind of like, they screw up and they actually do real science for a change and like find things like cost plus markups happening
6: and he tries so hard to explain it away you know he's like <laughs> yeah. well supply and demand exists it's just that these prices are sticky because the cost of changing the price on the menu is actually too expensive so they choose not to and that's
5: why prices are sticky
6: yeah. they can't they can't change the stickers <laughs> you know <laughs> it's completely yeah. insane
5: It's like the cost of – there is a cost to administering prices themselves, and that's why they don't change prices like the price (laughs) mechanism for neoclassical economics would suggest.
6: And Uh, then he went to look for the stickers, and he couldn't find it. He couldn't find the cost. (laughs) So he's like, well, I guess it's not (laughs) sticky because of menu costs. It's like, I wonder what it could be. What a mystery.
4: (laughs) Okay, so we we should we should start wrapping up because this has been this has been a very long episode already. But I wanted to ask before we go, uh, what 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 are you all doing next, and what other incredibly v- uh, funny economics discourses can we expect to have giant like craters punched into <laughs> in the next couple of years?
5: So one thing we've started to work on, and we've discussed a little bit on this podcast, I believe. Yeah, a while back was uh, the importance of Forex foreign exchange for all sorts of macroeconomic things like inflation being one of them. Like if you're uh, a small country that, um, that does not have hegemonic monetary authority like the US does to get people to use its currency and you have to go out and import things in some other currency, how does that affect your ability to socially provision yourself as, as a nation state? and like do development work and we're developing a theory of forex essentially that is um it's a it's an extension of the chartalist framework that informs MMT but with some important criticisms about how like the central M- MMT insight sort of is like you can create if you're the sovereign issuer of your own fiat currency you can always provision enough of it to you can always spend as much of it into existence as you need to to do productive things. And yes, that's true. You can create infinity of your own money, but your own, not other people's money. Yeah. So other currencies, like if you're um like uh well, like Sri Lanka, for example, had this problem. If you're, yeah, Sri, if you're Sri Lanka or Mexico, or whoever, most of most of the world, basically, you need to maintain and augment your balance of of like the the trading the major trading currencies, U.S. dollars, yen, the euro, to name three, uh, and uh, have balances of those. You need to maintain your balance of payments and your balances of specific currencies in order to meet the biophysical obligations that your, whatever your development strategy necessitates. Because in, in most instances, not all, but most you're going to need to like, no one's going, if you're Sri Lanka, no one's going to want to, to transact in your currency for major uh, purchases of like staple goods. You're going to need to use like dollars or euros or yen or, or the Yuan perhaps, you know, who knows. (laughs) Exactly. So one of the major trading currencies. And
6: this also raises the question of how a currency becomes a major trading currency, and that almost invariably takes you in two directions. One is which countries are powerful and able to industrialize yeah. and make capital goods that nobody else has that everybody wants a piece of, and two, which are the powerful imperialist great powers. Yep. And it turns out that those are the, the, the nexus that's created between imperialism, development, and the balance of payments Those three things can't even be discussed independently of each other. And the politics of what is going to be used as the – what Steve and I are tentatively calling the international means of payment. uh, In other words, what you can use in international transactions across a whole region or across the entire planet. That is a hugely political question that all the major great powers in their inter-imperial conflict are constantly fighting over. So right now – it appears that China is attempting to make a bid for a global yuan. First, they tried to do it through the digital yuan. Now they're seemingly trying to do it through BRICS by getting the other BRICS countries to agree to a kind of yuan gold standard, mirroring the Bretton Woods Agreement that was basically the dollar piggybacking off of gold uh, to reach global preeminence. Will it work? Will it not? Nobody really knows. It's, it's, it's a total mess. But in theory, that could be one way that you could suddenly have like the yuan – at least in a certain currency zone, be used as the main way of doing imports. Uh, And if the U.S. suddenly needs an import from that zone, which hypothetically, if it existed, right – they couldn't use dollars anymore or, or maybe dollars would be at a high disadvantage you know, in the exchange rate between dollars and that currency at that point. Or maybe they would just be banned entirely from using dollars. They have to get it in that currency, which means that suddenly the US, which has basically been able to print Forex, to print the international means of payment for some 50 years now, would suddenly have to actually hold reserves of this thing. Now, if we have to hold reserves of it, that means that we have to sell something to the people who issue that currency. Uh, that means that we suddenly have to worry about uh, which firms are the most profitable exporters. And I bet you anything that none of our listeners know what the most important company in America would become if that situation happened. You is it is it Uber? Is it is it is it Amazon? Is it is it is it all these like Fortune five hundred companies and whatever? No. No, I mean, it's one of the Fortune 500, but it's not like towards the top of that list. It's Boeing. Boeing is by far our single greatest exporter firm. It would be, in a situation like this, the national champion, so to speak, to use language that's usually reserved for, uh, for, for less developed countries than the US. Um, and this is exactly the kind of like thinking that is important because, you know, obviously the other thing that would happen if dollar hegemony ended is that it would be a huge economic crash in the US. Like suddenly the import, the cost of importing anything that were in that zone would skyrocket and it would mess up, um, you know, our balance of payments and it would cause inflation depending on how quickly it happens and how, how little, how much or how little time firms have to adjust uh, their supply chains and stuff like that. So it's uh, this is exactly what you need in order to understand everything from the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to current geopolitics today. And 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 I'm hoping that that Steve and I, through developing the theory, will create a general framework that can be used to tie discussions that people usually have in purely political terms uh, about inter-imperial conflict into economic questions, so that there's no longer a kind of division of labor uh, between uh, between economics which denies the existence of imperialism and then the people who study imperialism as historians or political scientists or whatever
4: stay stay tuned for more theories (laughs) dropping at some point in the future
6: (laughs) oh and we should do our marketing pitch if you like the stuff that you hear you should seriously consider uh checking out the magazine which is at strange op. and also please consider if you have the ability to to subscribe or donate um Subscription start at five dollars, and it really, uh, it 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 really helps because all the money that we get that doesn't just go to our capitalist overlords for basically like you know paying for the services that we use to keep the website going and the magazine going, all of it goes to our writers, and we try to pay them above market rate for little magazines of our size. Uh, so, uh, if you want to see more of this stuff and more arts, philosophy, anthropology, history, uh, all the other kind of stuff, poetry that we publish, uh, definitely please consider.
4: Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put we'll put a link to the magazine in, in the description. Um, yeah, Steve Jimsey, thank you so much for thank you so much for being on the show and for
6: yelling at the,
4: the Nobel Prize with me. <laughs> uh,
6: it's been a pleasure. It's been great, man. Thank you.
4: Yeah, and uh, you can find us at It Could Happen Here, but that Happened Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, we have a website where we post our sources. Uh, it's coolzomedia.com. There's other stuff there. You should go there and yeah, go go into the world and make life worse for mainstream economists. It, it it could happen here it's it's the podcast that's called it could happen here uh thing, things fall apart and put them back together again etc etc we're slightly rushing this intro because Garrison had to leave in like 10 minutes not 10 minutes but moments, yeah we're, moments we're away yeah so we've spent a lot of time covering the sort of various aspects of the trans genocide we haven't the, the aspect the angle we haven't covered that much is the New York Times and partially that's my fault because if I, I Every time I've tried to write something about the New York Times, it's devolved into about seven hours of me reading every single time the New York Times wrote an article that was pro-Hitler. So, you know, it's it's, it's difficult to be what you would describe as reasonably objective when you're talking about these people and not just start yelling about the Iraq War. However, comma, other people have done a very, very good job about this. And things have developed in the sort of world of the New York Times printing just... incredibly bizarre th- transphobic articles and to talk about one of these things and, and some developments on one of their stories uh we are talking to evan urquhart of assigned media who has published a very very good story about some real nonsense that the new york times <laughs> their journalists have gotten up to so evan welcome to the show
8: yeah thanks for having me uh, always glad to talk about nonsense
4: yeah, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a real time. Also, here is Garrison. Yes, um, hello. Yeah, so I guess okay. I th- I think the place to start with this is getting people caught up with the incredibly bizarre story of Jamie Reed. So I guess I wanted to start there. Can you talk a little bit about who Jamie Reed is and how the New York Times and a bunch of other very less reputable somehow newspapers got involved with this?
8: Yeah, so I mean, there are certainly reputable newspapers that have looked into the allegations of former gender clinic staff member in St. Louis, Jamie Reed. And um, those organizations, including local papers, have found that her allegations didn't uh, hold up. She, um, this was uh, months ago, kind of the beginning of the year, I believe. Um, She kind of came forward with great fanfare and an alliance-defending freedom lawyer (laughs) and said that the gender clinic she once worked at was harming children. They weren't engaging in informed consent. They were pressuring parents to go along with these harmful treatments. Uh, Horrifying stuff that, if true, would be just a major, major scandal, if true. And um, the allegations fell apart pretty quickly. Um, numerous parents and patients came back, came you know, forward saying this is nothing like what we've experienced. Um, some of that was pretty directly refuting things that she said, such as, you know, kids never got any therapy. They just saw a therapist for an hour and an endocrinologist for an hour and were immediately approved for hormones. And so people came forward saying, I did six months of therapy. I did nine months. Yeah, of therapy. Like,
4: I, I, I wish you could do that. Like, no, <laughs> right. <come
8: on. laughs> like, right. Come on. I mean, hmm. it was very wild and and very discredited. And then, um, for some reason, apparently back in May, Azine Goraishi of the New York Times started looking into this story, and um, she didn't find anything different. I mean, if you look at her reporting, if anything, she found even more evidence that Jamie Reed is not accurate and not on the up and up. But the story yeah. that she came out with is really, really weird. And, 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 and I think the thing—the thing that—that thing thats the most, I
4: don't know, at least, at least before the most recent round of incredibly bizarre stuff the thing that's the most infuriating to me about the sort of jamie reed story is that the the thing that had come out by the time the new york times was writing about it was that it it looked a lot like if if you look at the stuff that jamie reed had been doing and people talking about their experiences with her it looked like she was trying to sabotage kids getting health care because yeah, I- she personally didn't believe in it
8: I talked to a parent, a parent who was also talked to by the New York Times, who um, had really just wanted like an educational visit for her like eight-year-old, and Jamie Reed said, "We can't do anything for you. Um, sorry. Uh, you know, we can only bring you in if your child is an adolescent ready to go on hormone therapy." And so after the allegations came out, this parent got in touch with the clinic. Jamie Reed had left and they were like, what are you talking about? We do educational appointments all the time. Come in. They spent, you know, almost two hours talking to the family about the different, you know, medical possibilities in the far future and just, you know, trying to help educate the kid about their body and their options years and years before they'd ever need anything.
4: Yeah, which is really infuriating because like the actual story here is that. You know, even, even clinics that are, like, trying to do the right thing wind up with just incredibly deranged cis people who basically can at every point in the process act as a gatekeeper and decide that, like, you don't get to get treatment. And that's awful and is, is one of them. I mean, you know, even even in place, even, even in parts of the U.S. at clinics that are good, that is a thing that can just happen to you is you get these sort of gatekeeper stuff. But instead of doing that, instead of, again, covering the story they had been handed about someone trying to keep kids from getting health care, they did this. They, you know, this this turned into this like like full court press against. Wait, Gary, you.
9: My, you're right <laughs> my, I, I have to close my door because the air conditioner is way too loud in the oh, other room okay. but, the cats cats, but there? now the cats start screaming at the door but now I open the door and they, and they don't want to come in so they're just like on the threshold just like staring at me and, like e- make a choice, come in or come out and I think, I we'll think leave, we're leaving this in this is yeah, great content <laughs> They're out. They're gone. (laughs) They they had their chance. (laughs) They they blew it. Yeah. What happens
4: instead is is this sort of like full court press with a bunch of, you know, like starting in sort of conservative media and then moving into sort of liberal media, like using the story as an example of like why why we have to like stop, like we have to shut down clinics and stuff. All while children's
9: hospitals are getting bomb threats. uh, Yeah, constantly, uh, every day. Mostly due to kind of prodding by ghouls at the Daily Wire who are hunting for clicks. And yeah. there's also a, a big part of this is like th- this tactic of attacking like healthcare centers and clinics proved to be a pretty good recipe to go viral. Um, that's what the Daily Wire discovered. And that's something the New York Times certainly took notice of as well. Uh, is that, hey, this is this is a way to drive a lot of attention towards our website. Um and that, that is just another another angle about this this sort of thing which also like it, it it leads to real world consequences not just in terms of healthcare getting restricted but also like threats of violence against doctors um the right has historically been completely willing to carry out acts of violence against healthcare workers um and let alone you know trying threatening to bomb a children's hospital yeah
8: and the exact allegations were were really devastating for these families. I mean, Absolutely. I talked to Heidi, who's, you know, her daughter's personal medical history was misrepresented, shared with the world, shared in a million articles, and used to, um, to fuel gender-affirming care bans. You know, I mean, that is, like, really damaging for a, like, yeah. 17, 18-year-old who's just trying to, like, live her life in kind of a conservative town.
4: Which also and, and, and this is another another aspect of this is like she is sharing the private medical history of patients at a <sighs> clinic, which you are not allowed to do. That is a which is very funny for people who rant about these all of these people they yell about scream HIPAA literally HIPAA. all
9: the time. They always we finally on got
8: one. We finally got an actual HIPAA violation and uh Yeah, God. I think the HIPAA thing has been I mean you know, a Zingarashi could have gotten that story, I feel like. I mean, I think it's been really undercovered. My understanding is that healthcare workers are not supposed to have to share information that's identifiable to the patient. Yeah. And we have a patient saying, I could tell this was my story. And so, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that people have underestimated the extent to which real families could look at these allegations and say, this is me <laughs> twisted distorted, used to hurt my family and other families like mine. And there's kind of no outrage about that. It's kind of this neglected backwater of this story.
4: Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the thing it reminds me the most of is the is the original like vaccines cause autism story where you have someone who is incredibly politically motivated, who is incredibly unreliable, who's demonstrably unreliable, who is not someone who's you know who's someone who in the field everyone's like what what is going on here this is complete nonsense who like misrepresents and just straight up lies about about like about about their patients and then also it turns out like has abused their patients or in, the, in this case it's not has abused their patients but in this case he's like has successfully like stopped parents from being able to talk to the clinic about what the options for their kids are but the media sort of doesn't care about that all, all they all they see is sort of this story and they they just sort of latch onto it and then they spread all of this stuff and it's like you know it reminds it reminds me a lot of that we're like you know, we're still dealing with the consequences of just the completely fake bullshit about like vaccism, vaccines supposedly causing autism which and, and and again, like that—that's something that, that never that never would have gotten mainstreamed if the media hadn't picked it up and ran with it. And yet, you know, every single time one of these absolute like politically motivated frauds like gets up on the stands, like there's there's the New York Times doing doing their article about it. And,
9: and 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 like this used to be like Glenn Beck's territory, who would like bring <laughs> out like a chalkboard and make like a make like a crazy wall with like yarn and string. Um, and now it's it 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 actually has been relegated to the New York Times the the the, the sort of the sort of coverage that they're doing over these types of like moral panics around healthcare. Um, I think like if 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 you look at like Fox News twenty years ago, this this was the type of stuff that they did for a long time before it was actually a little bit too insane, and they had to like fire Glenn Beck. Um, and it's it's this it's the same sort of stuff now that's propagated by people like the Daily Wire. Uh, and then picked up on by even more kind of mainstream publications.
8: I mean, I think what's so insidious about this story in particular, and some of the other New York Times stories, is that they represent this as being their deep investigative journalism. They represent this as being the finest that the Times produces. And here is you know, the mother of a trans girl who went to the reporter and said, I can prove to you I have medical records, I have emails to prove to you that what is in this allegation uh, is about my family and isn't true. The reporter takes that and kind of sticks it in at the end, you know, like th- it's not lying, but it is so totally distorting the truth that it feels like lying. It feels worse than lying. Almost.
9: Yeah, especially because there's like, like thousands of people who will just read the headline they're not going to scroll to the bottom of the thing and read a, read a, read a little disclaimer being like haha jk it's like- there's a lie <laughs> on everything that's, like- not, that's not good enough
4: yeah and, and I, I think this gets into the part that so you very recently talked to uh the mother of one of the girls who was you know who who Jamie reed has been lying about and i talked you to, to three stronger-
8: to three of the parents who um who azine had talked to
4: yeah, and you discovered some very disturbing and incredibly bizarre stuff that Azin was doing to get parents to stay in the story after reads, and like this, this was in her follow up story after a bunch of people came out and were like, "Hey, this is like not correct." This this person has in fact been lying about this. Yeah, so could you could you
8: go into uh, what you found about this? Yeah, it was truly, truly bizarre. I mean, I, going in, there were some parents that contacted me because they'd spoken to Azeen Goreshi and they were really upset about the story. And, you know, I went into it thinking I'm going to do them a favor. I'm going to let them feel heard. They feel disappointed about the story. This kind of happens in journalism. I was not expecting what I got. So (laughs) this parent had been very um, suspicious of Azine, because of Azine's previous um, writing about trans issues. And so um, I think she and her family kind of were very cautious and very savvy. And they said, We don't want to be part of a story that's going to be negative on this clinic that we feel saved our daughter's life. So, you know, I'm willing to talk to you. I'm willing to give you this information about this person who lied about our daughter's history. But if you're going to turn that into a hit piece on the clinic, we don't want to be part of it. And Azine you know, reassured her, calmed her fears. And so, you know, they were going forward, but cautiously. And then this mother sees um, Azine at a courthouse where Jamie Reed was testifying about the allegations um, in Missouri, um, and just sees the, the warm relationship between Azine and Jamie Reed. And she thinks something isn't right here. I helped her catch this person in a lie, but they're all, you know, buddy, buddy, that seems weird. So she um you know she she first went up to Jamie Reed and confronted her. She said I'm liver toxicity mom. Um, and you know she again noticed that Jamie Reed is kind of saying, "Oh, how can I help you? What do you want?" and like looking to Azine like save me from this crazy person. And so that's when the mother said, "We're out. We're not we're not going to be part of this story." And Azine did not take that for an answer. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, she followed them to their car as they're trying to leave. She stood in the car door so they couldn't drive away saying, you know, please keep talking to keep talking. You know, I need, I don't know exactly what she's saying, but like, I need you in the story. And, um, you know, the mom says like, no, Azine, we're out. Could please step away from the car. And they drove away. And then Azine called them and called them and they picked up, and Azine managed to convince them to let her come over to the their hotel room. This is the night before the New York Times article published, and so now um, Heidi and her husband and Azine are in this hotel room, and Azine is going paragraph by paragraph, telling her everything that's in the story, trying to convince her that it's not a hit piece on the clinic, and the family isn't buying it at all. The family is like, "No, you're describing a hit piece on the clinic. We're <laughs> yeah. out." But they're left with this horrible, horrible conundrum because if they actually pull out of the article, which as far as I can tell, they really did have this agreement. Again, Azim wouldn't talk to me, so like it's a little unclear what the agreement was or exactly what's going on here. Um, but in the end, they decided you know, there's no evidence that this woman lied if we pull out of the story. So they felt that they had kind of no choice, even though they felt completely betrayed, completely devastated that their story was gonna be used in this way. They felt they had no choice but to stay in.
4: Yeah. And then like the and the way that like it ends the article like is is basic like the article is like completely supportive of Jamie Reed, even though, again, demonstrably in the article, she is lying.
8: Such a weird which- article. You find someone's lying, but you're still spending all of your words saying, well, she sorry, she lied this one time, but she's basically credible. Just bizarre
4: yeah and then you know and the the new york times's response to this is like the piece you're referring to was rigorously a reporter and edited and thoughtful and sensitive to the moment the state the time stands behind its publication unreservedly it's like well yeah of, of course of course it meets the new york times like incredibly demanding standards for journalism these are the people who published like these are the people who published the yellow cake uranium story like these people <laughs> like these people have published things that like a a, a like these these people have pu- published stuff about the Iraq war that like British tabloids wouldn't publish. So like yeah, I, I, like, it's it's not it's not. I don't I don't think it's that surprising to me that like the New York Times was like this pass editorial standards. But that's because again, the New York Times backed Hitler and like I deliberately forced mean- yeah. the entire <laughs> country into starting a war by straight up lying about a bunch of
8: stuff they knew was fake let me Mm. take a moment and say there are a lot of reporters who work for the New York times who do really great work. Very, very occasionally it's even about trans issues, but like, it is certainly not a monolith of ridiculous nonsense. It's just all of the good work kind of camouflages the ridiculous nonsense and lets them get it through when they, when they go on a tear, when they go on a crusade against, you know, against someone.
4: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, they. I don't know. The the New York Times, they they pick they pick their moments to get incredibly ideological about this. And then they hide behind the more normal reporting they do in order to sort of like disguise the fact that, again, their sort this this person knows that their sources lie is demonstrably lying to them. I just I don't know. It's it's. The the thing that was interesting to me about the story too is that Azine is someone who up until this point, like seems to have like like from from everything I I, I had been aware of Azine from
8: Azine did really good um Me Too reporting, I believe, on the science community, the astronomy community. Yeah, in yeah. astronomy,
4: which I like I, th- I think I don't talk about enormously was that I did astronomy for a little bit. I didn't do very much astronomy, but there was a there was a, a small amount of time where I wanted to do astronomy. And so, like, I knew a bunch of the people like in that scene Zine had a very, very good rep there as like the person you could go to to talk about like like to, 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 to do a B2 story, which makes it even more weird that, you know, I, I guess this is just... I don't know. I'm, I'm hesitant to just brush this off as sort of like trans brain where like some like a cis reporter starts covering trans stuff and just completely loses their mind. But, you know, it, it's, it's a really startling and disturbing like shift from this I mean- person who had a very, very good rep on. Yes, like as someone you could go to, to like her standing in someone's car door trying to stop a family from driving away because they want because they don't want to be involved in a story where she's lying about them.
9: Who who could have thought that a radical feminist could be trans exclusionary? <laughs> this is crazy.
8: <laughs> Holy shit, guys.
7: Uh, <laughs> What's how keep going
8: over? on? people are complicated. It I yeah. think has to do with who she feels sympathy for. Um and women in science are maybe people that she feels sympathy for and who she for I have no idea what reason doesn't. And like innocent parents of trans youth are apparently people she doesn't really have that empathy for, have that ability yeah. to Or the kids themselves apparently. <laughs> I mean, as a trans person, I never expect a reporter to um, oh, have yeah, empathy no. for me. But these <laughs> white parents, these middle class <laughs> white parents, please, <laughs> you must take them seriously.
4: The other thing I, I think I wanted to talk about was the impact that this reporting has had on the broader. So we, we, we alluded to this a little bit, but yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that right wing – Sort of I mean, right wing lawyers, like right wing politicians, have been using, like specifically this coverage, and also sort of like the 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 fear mongering around gender clinics as something they're using to support, like health to support healthcare bans on trans youth.
8: Yeah, Jamie Reed's allegations directly resulted in a ban on gender affirming care in Missouri. Um, you know, there were families that. We're going to the legislature week after week, and we're keeping it at bay. And then these allegations came out, and it fell apart, and the care ban was passed. And, um, you know, it would be bad enough if they found a bad clinic. But, you know, there's nothing miraculous about doctors who treat trans people that makes them incapable of being unethical. (laughs) You know, like, it would have been devastating if it was the truth. But for it to have been you know, all based on lies is it's just a really tough blow.
4: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I I have friends there and it's, it's like, it's bleak right now. And I I think I've been really, you know, I mean, I I don't know why I would, I expected these people to sort of like even remotely feel a single emotion about the fact that that directly the stuff the, the actions that they did led directly to a bunch of kids losing their health care but you know there's been no there's been no reckoning with this right as as best i can tell neither the new york times nor any of the journalists involved any, any of the editors and any the publishers none of these people seem to care at all about the fact that their about their work directly is leading to the suffering and possibly death of children and i don't know like i i this is one of those things where like either, either something about this changes, and you know, we, we we get to a point where it's unacceptable to sort of do this kind of stuff, or we just, you know, we we wait for the next round of journalists to like find some absolute crank who they like dug out of some like deranged super room mansion somewhere to like push push another one of these stories because like, right now, like this is this is this appears to just be an established path that you can use to sort of like. You know, like from from both ends. Right. It's a thing you can use as a journalist to advance your career. And it's a thing you can use as like a crank to be suddenly on the talk show circuit to get a bunch of money. It's just lying about all of this stuff.
8: Yep. And I mean, you know, you try to inject some accountability, but you can't make people listen. Um, you yeah, know, this is what I do every day and I'm going to keep doing it. But I, I'm under no illusions that since people are necessarily going to start listening, Um it's just, you got to put it out there.
4: Yeah. So I, I guess two more things I wanted to ask about before we sort of wrap up. One is, okay, so on, on the off chance that there are cis journalists listening to this, um, what kinds of things would you recommend to them to like, to make to make sure you A, don't fall down this rabbit hole and B, to make sure that if you are attempting to write a story that is good, that you get things right.
8: Yeah. So the Trans Journalist Association recently published an updated style guide, which I would absolutely um, suggest people check out because it's much more in-depth than anything that I can say. But I think that the biggest pitfall people have is thinking that they understand more than they do. So um, and, and I think that the kind of connected pitfall is is just a wow. there's smoke, there's fire, like, well, there must be more to the skeptical side than there really is. So while I, you know, always try to butter journalists up by saying you can make up your own mind and, you know, look at the evidence, like really engage with trans people who are not just telling their stories, but who are science reporters themselves, like myself, really engage with experts who are not trans, but who understand this medical information and are representatives of a mainstream medical consensus and really try to, you know, understand that the experts are experts for a reason. And the mainstream consensus is a mainstream consensus for a reason. And don't be so quick to just assume that a bunch of activists and cranks know something that everyone else is trying to keep from you because that is a conspiratorial mindset that is below you as a mainstream cisgender journalist and that you wouldn't be falling into with, you know, masks or anti-vax or whatever. And it's just because trans people are marginalized that I think people are kind of falling for this crap and getting rolled.
9: You are not immune yeah. to conspiratorial
4: thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well and this is this is something this is something I'm gonna talk about at length more in um, one, one day, the like 65,000 word thing that I've been writing about the lab leak stuff is going to come out. And, you know, <laughs> one, one of the, uh, God, God, I've, <laughs> I have, I, I have spent so many hours talking to epidemiologists. You have no idea, but I, uh, one, one of the things that, you know, comes up there and it comes up also just in general science, conspiracism is if, if someone like people who actually do normal science do not, start yelling about how they're being censored by the scientific establishment and like there's a a giant conspiracy to stop them from talking about their work even people who legitimately are being like actually screwed over by scientific establishment right people who have been abused people you know like people of color people from marginalized backgrounds who like i like i know these people right i grew up with a bunch of these people they don't talk like this about that the only people who talk like this are absolute cranks and it would be really great if Journalists realized that like actual scientists don't talk about science in 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 a way where they're like, "Ah, the medical establishment is censoring me. i would I would love for that to happen. i I don't know, I'm skeptical that it will happen because it's I mean, you know there, it's, it's a great story.
10: <laughs>
8: everyone knows that there are times when the medical uh, or when the medical or scientific establishment is wrong you as a lay journalist are probably not going to be able to tell, I am sorry, which times those are. So (laughs) slow your roll, don't envision Pulitzers, and get grounded on, you know, what the basics are instead of thinking that you kind of know better than the people who spend their lives researching this is my um, entreaty to journalists who maybe don't realize how transphobia might be playing a role in their wanting to believe certain things.
4: And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the Trans Data Library, because I'm very excited about this. This sounds rad. Um,
8: Yeah, so, um, you know, a few months ago, I started working, um, you know, with some other people in the trans community, most of whom are, you know, staying anonymous on um, a resource to try and help people who, you know, we really envision people who are in good faith but trans issues are not their main thing. You know what I mean? So like not somewhat, not as Goreshi, but maybe a Goreshi of five years ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> the person who is a journalist who wants to get the story right, but there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many groups with so many different names. They're very skilled sometimes at, as presenting themselves as you know, legitimate. Um, so this is the Trans Data Library um, upcoming hopefully by the end of the month is going to be a kind of, um, you know, Wikipedia for the user, not Wikipedia in not like editable by the community, because that's a very <laughs> bad idea for trans stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a resource on what are these groups? Who are these activists? What have they done in the past? It is intended as a journalistic resource, not an activist resource, which just means, you know, if someone is there isn't anyone like this, but if someone is a Nobel Prize winning scientist, we're not going to pretend they didn't. You know what I mean? If someone has legitimate credentials, you will find that out. If someone has said things that are discrediting, you'll find that out. But it isn't just a list of the most discrediting things someone has said. And we are going to, um, you know, directly try to get this out to Journalists, local journalists, particularly people again who have decent coverage—not people who are you know already on a tear—and to democratic politicians who similarly are you know sympathetic but might need an extra source of information. Um, and yeah, it is—it um, is coming. I want people to be aware of it so that they can start spreading it and sharing it when it does, so that we can hopefully try to. Um, you know, just get some basic information into the hands of people who I think desperately need it. They may not know that they desperately need it, but desperately yeah. need basic information on some of these groups and some of these bad actors.
4: I think that's definitely a good thing because there, there is a lot of information out there on the connections between, you know, the sort of right wing grifters who come out of the woodworks talking about this stuff. And, you know, the, 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 they're they're the, 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 there's sort of demonstrable links to far-right extremist groups, to the Proud Boys, to, you know, sort of right-wing uh, think tanks. But that's stuff that, like, a, a, the, the, the subset of trans people who spend their time doing this are all very well aware of, but the reporters who are sort of venturing into the space for the first time don't know about it all. And yeah, having having a thing we can put into their laps, being like, "Hey, <laughs> this is these are all the people who are like getting paid by the Alliance defending freedom and yeah. stuff." Yeah, yeah, that's really what I'm helpful. hoping to
8: make. Um, so the url is probably going to be transdatalibrary.org it is a little broken right now go to assignedmedia.org you know follow me follow my twitter follow my project and watch that space for the transdata library um because i'm hoping it can do some good
4: yeah i'm 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 excited for it and yeah do you have anything else you want to say
8: before we close out I think that's it for me. Thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah.
4: Yeah. Thanks for coming. And thanks. Thanks for reporting on this story because Lord knows the rest of the media wasn't going to do it. <laughs> that's why I started doing it. <laughs> All right. This has been, it can happen here. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, at happened here, Pod, and yeah go go into the world and be better about this than the New York Times, which is not an enormously high bar, but it's a bar they consistently failed to cross. so <laughs> you too could be superior have superior journalistic ethics to, than the New York Times.
8: Oh, this is what I tell myself every day) <laughs>
2: Moplay. play
1: Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
3: Welcome, everyone, back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and sometimes stuff that's slightly less depressing than that. But not today. Today, today we're talking about the falling apart sort of thing. Uh, and our... Our, you know, continuing coverage of what we like to call the crumbles here today leads us to a little state called New Mexico and specifically a little city in New Mexico called Albuquerque. Um, if you have been kind of casually skimming the news uh, about the American Southwest, you might be aware that the governor of New Mexico has recently announced a ban on citizens carrying openly or concealed with a license firearms within the county that contains Albuquerque. Um, The justification for this is a recent surge in gun violence uh, in the state, uh, most of which is centered on Albuquerque. Um, And this is – there's been a pretty over the last – specifically the last year – uh, a pretty dramatic increase in the number of shootings uh, from 2021 to 2022, the number of shootings in Albuquerque um, or murders, I should say, most of which are shootings also about 84 percent. The number of murders in Albuquerque almost doubled, I think it's and, and I think still, you know, it's gone down a little bit this year, but there's still about 50 percent uh, higher than the normal rate um, now. Uh, as you might guess from the fact that uh, you've probably watched Breaking Bad 15 years ago or whatever, um, the drug trade, drug trafficking, drug deals gone bad uh, have something to do with this. But I think this year, about 17, something like that, 17, 20 percent of, of the uh, the homicides in Albuquerque are drug related. But a much higher number, above 70 percent, um, the police have given the uh, sort of kind of primary cause as individual disrespect um, now what does that mean well it means it, kind of what you'd think of it people getting into shit with each other and somebody pulls a gun right um, a lot of these have been traffic related and in fact the the shooting that kind of most directly inspired the governor's uh controversial legal measure was a road rage incident um about uh what was this uh yeah on uh, September 9th I think it was um an 11 year old boy was shot and killed in a road rage incident Uh, as his family was leaving a minor league baseball game. Um, It looks like his aunt cut off another driver. Uh, The driver followed them and fired 17 shots into the car. The 11-year-old boy was killed and his aunt is still in uh, in the hospital uh, in unstable condition, uh, at least last I checked. Um, after this shooting, and this is by the way, you know, prior to this, there was another case where a little kid, I think a four-year-old was killed in another road rage shooting incident. Um, we don't know who shot the kid in this instance. We don't know if it was, a, for example, a citizen legally carrying a firearm or somebody, um, although in the state of uh, uh, New Mexico, you are allowed to carry uh, uh, a loaded firearm in your vehicle. Um, you're not allowed to walk around with it concealed without a license, but you're allowed to conceal it in your vehicle. The shooting that preceded this one, the road rage shooting, wasn't a legal shooting. It was because the guy was a drug dealer. He had illegal drugs on him, all that stuff. But yeah, it's messy. So uh, in re- in, re- uh, in response to the governor's um, proclamation – um, there have been uh, quite a bit of uh, people have gotten angry in part because the Supreme Court ruled fairly recently that you have a, a right to carry a concealed firearm. There are some barriers states can set up in terms of licensing, but you can't stop people from carrying – like you have to have a legal avenue for people to carry concealed firearms. That's something that the Supreme Court has said you have a right to do, and governors do not have the right to uh, overrule that sort of thing. On public health grounds. So this has become an increasingly contentious issue. We're going to talk about some of the things that have followed from this, but I want to bring on our source for the day, Lucas Herndon. Lucas is a New Mexico-based activist, um, someone we've had on the show before, uh, as well as a a gun owner. Lucas, uh, welcome to the program.
11: Thanks, Robert. Good to be back, sort of, as always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a messy one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so that was a good a good summary of uh, of of what got us here. Um, This uh, the the executive order was dropped Friday afternoon. And. um, I, (laughs) I immediately went to my work chat and said, "Uh, hold on, y'all, this is going to be a wild weekend. And as you can imagine, it was there has been incredible responses from sort of everybody uh on the sort of yeah despite political ideologies um the responses have been swift and ranging in their um loudness let's say Mm -hmm. uh and it's created a yeah national buzz um a number of right-wing talking heads from the state have now you know been brought into national talking spaces uh we have seen the news bounce around the far right um, blogosphere and, you know, it's made it to Alex Jones and that kind of ilk. Um Yeah. But then, of course, you know, and so obviously there's the there's that far end of the spectrum. And, you know, then there's the response here in the state, uh, which is, you know, ranging from supportive to indifferent to angry to all, you know, all the different things you can think of.
3: Yeah. One of the things – people may be kind of confused about this. One of the things that's problematic about this is specifically the fact that it is restricting citizens who have concealed carry permits from continuing to carry uh, in, in the county. Uh, states have a right to – at least currently, the Supreme Court has not you know, ruled counter to that, currently have a right to restrict people from open carrying. And you have a right to restrict people from doing stuff like unlicensed carrying a handgun in your car, right? Uh, In the state of Oregon, for example, you cannot carry a loaded weapon in your vehicle without a concealed carry permit. Um, As far as I'm aware, there's not been any sort of constitutional challenge to that. There may be in the future. Um, but the Supreme Court you know, has, has ruled very differently on the issue of concealed uh, firearms. And so that's a problem because you know, regardless of what you think about how the law on concealed carry of firearms should be, the, the f- idea of a governor overturning a right like that, access to a right like that based on what they call a public health emergency is, is deeply concerning you know which is why you've had you know a surprising people come out against this including David Hogg who's one of the the parkland kids and a, a gun control advocate who said you know the governor simply doesn't have the right to do this which is kind of more or less where i land
11: um yeah and you know and just to just to be clear right i'm i'm not an attorney uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I i am a gun owner and and uh, have exercised that right since i was legally allowed to do so at 18 which was very long ago at this point um so yeah i've been I have been a New Mexico gun owner paying attention to things, uh, and, and how those laws affect me for quite a while. Um, one of the, yeah, one of the interesting things about the executive order and you sort of touched on it is that the, in, in the, in the order, it specifically limits, um, having a firearm in your vehicle to traveling to any excluded place that she listed in the executive order. Right. So, so. There's there's a there's a ban on, you know, carrying unless you're going to like X, Y or Z specific places. And that then is furthered that you can only have a, a firearm in your vehicle if you're traveling to one of said places. Um, so, yeah, that's that is in direct uh, contradiction to existing law, uh, because New Mexico in it, ostensibly your home is, or your car is an extension of your home. Um You don't there is there there basically is no law about having a car, a firearm in your car, um, which has led to some weird things, because so, for instance, um, you can get a DUI on a bicycle. And so that law has actually been used that you can carry a concealed firearm like in a backpack on a bicycle. But the second you step off the bicycle, now you're in violation of the law, unless you have a permit. So, you know, those specific pieces of gun law. And her executive order, even in the state, are at odds, um, let alone whatever the maybe, you know, the federal implications are.
3: Yeah. And I I think, uh, you know, one of the things that is kind of concerning about this to me is and, and that should be concerning about this to people is that I I don't see how I can see an argument for saying we want to restrict the unlicensed carry of firearms and vehicles, right? Because a, not, a significant number of these shootings seem to have involved that. Although it is a little bit unclear, uh, we don't know who who carried out the most recent road raid shooting, so we don't know if that person was legally allowed to possess a firearm, right? We know that in at least one of the recent shootings that killed a kid, the person was, you know, had. Uh, a dealing amount and what would appear to be a dealing like a uh, setup of, you know, it, it was parceled out into baggies, marijuana on him, which is illegal. I'm not making a moral statement about that. I don't think it should be illegal to, but it is, it is illegal, right? Like he was not carrying within the bounds of federal law, but restricting people from carrying licensed concealed handguns does not seem, I mean, number one, I, I haven't seen evidence that like that's a, a major driver of gun violence. Uh, but number two, If a a decent number of these shootings are people acting outside of the bounds of the law, which they appear to be, um, I don't see how restricting people from lawfully carrying a weapon um, is a is is a something that can um, that's going to make the problem better. Right. Like it seems like you're you're kind of striking at this in an ineffective way that's going to galvanize resistance to any kind of gun control as opposed to going out with kind of a more limited and surgical approach to try and actually tackle the causes of the problem.
11: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, one of the reasons why being on your show to talk about this yeah. is is worth thinking about. The last time I was on uh, was, you know, earlier in the year when um, there we we discovered that the there was a GOP operative who had committed acts of violence uh, in the form of shooting at Democrat elected Democrats, uh, up in the Bernalillo County area, um, as an act of political violence and, um, worth thinking about is that, you know, he was charged with firing of firing a firearm from a moving vehicle, which is a crime. Like it's, yeah. it's a specific, yeah. yes. it's a specific crime, which um, and also like very valid crime. You should not be, you should never shoot from a moving vehicle. Like that's correct. That's yeah. correct. So the right. So we, you know, again, um, yeah, again, not a lawyer. However, it seems duplicative to have a law on the books that already um, there. It is a crime to fire your gun from a car already. uh, And people who have people who have committed heinous acts of violence by violating that law um, could be and should be charged under that law. First of all, I, and let me just say, like, if we believe in a car serial state, because that's a whole other moral yeah. question. However, if for the purposes of this conversation, um, however, if somebody is just driving down the street and has a gun in their car, does that create, you know, are they uh, are, you know, are they committing a crime um, that feels um, conflicting and harmful?
3: Yeah. And it's, you know, as you th- th- there's a couple of things we should talk about here. I, I think. um one of them is what i what i consider to be a kind of a dishonest um anti-gun control argument that comes out from time to time which is the idea that you shouldn't restrict access you can't restrict access to firearms because criminals won't obey those laws um it's true criminals don't obey like people who are committing gun crimes are not obeying the law by definition they're cr- people who are are committing gun crimes but Increased availability, access to firearms makes it easier for people who are going to be bad actors to acquire firearms, right? Regardless of what you think the legal remedy to that situation is, that is a a, a pretty undeniable situation. I consider this to be quite different because what you are saying in this instance is we are restricting – we have people who are not – acting legally with firearms they already own so we are going to restrict people who are acting within the bounds of the law with firearms they own from from behaving in a certain way um which i have a serious issue with but i do think that there is a difference you know between those two kind of situations on a pretty fundamental level
11: yeah i i would agree and um and and the disingenuous um knee-jerk response from the far right over this while completely expected um that's exactly what you know that's exactly what they're doing right they're equating this ill-informed uh poor, poorly worded i don't however you want to say it they're 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 taking this thing and, and using it as a pretense for all their uh far-right propaganda extremes um you know calling to impeach the governor because she's You know, intending to violate the Constitution or some silliness like that, Um, which is yeah, which is just yeah, it's that's just far right conspiracy masturbation in in my opinion.
3: And it has galvanized them, right? There's been open carry protests already um, and the sheriff saying or one of the sheriffs in the area saying, like, I'm not going to we will not be enforcing this law.
11: Well, and and yeah, and I think that that's actually maybe something that for the for this podcast and for for your audience, for those longtime listeners who've who followed this show, that to me is actually one of the most maybe interesting and like crumbles oriented parts of this. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So yesterday, the the Bernalillo County Sheriff, who is an elected official, and it is his county that the that this executive order affects. Um came out and said that he would not enforce it. Um, he said that the uh, he'd got, he'd barely gotten a, a heads up from the governor, um, but he did admit that, you know, she, she sort of like reached out to him, said, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. I know you probably won't agree. And he's like, yeah, I don't agree. And she's like, yeah. okay, well we'll figure it out. And he was like, okay, I guess we will. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So this, he came out made this announcement. He's not going to enforce it. Um the, The chief of police from the Albuquerque department has more or less made the same um, intonation uh, with support from the very um, progressive Democratic uh, mayor of Albuquerque, who hasn't necessarily outright said he disagrees, but has said that he's more concerned about his officer's safety and that brings up an interesting point that like oh yes (laughs) like 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 cops trying to enforce this law like that sounds like a recipe for disaster which is which is why you didn't see any cops enforcing the 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 order at the protest on sunday yeah
5: um well it is
3: one of those like why why would you right like that's
7: such
11: a yeah um yeah so the most recent thing this afternoon is that the The state's attorney general, um, whose whose job it is to defend the state uh, or, you know, officers of the state um, has announced that he will not defend the governor in his official capacity uh, from the three current lawsuits that have already been filed since Friday. Um, So so, yeah, there there basically seems to be this complete lack of support from the from the parts of government that are supposed to do the things, you know, yeah, yeah um, absolutely and and, you know, it 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 begs the, yeah, it it for those of us that think about these things, it begs the question of, um, yeah, how far does this go? What is the next, you know, thing that a a sitting governor attempts to pass using administrative power and then isn't yeah. enforced? and what does that mean? And how? we care about this one, but not other things or, you know, whatever. So yeah. those are those are the questions that that we're all asking ourselves here in New Mexico. And as somebody who who works in this field professionally, like we've spent a lot of time in the last 48 hours, like asking ourselves those questions. It's tough. It's there. There, really, there isn't an easy answer on this one.
3: And this is something, by the way, that is, I think, pretty directly relevant to everybody listening, because one of the stories probably underreported stories we've talked about it from time to time here you know it was something that kind of was was in the dna of the original you know run of it could happen here but probably we could stand to talk about it a lot more is the rise of those common term these guys use for themselves as constitutional sheriffs right and there is this this is a long standing belief on the far right it comes out of really the 70s and 80s is when a lot of this stuff started cooking but this belief that has kind of formed over, you know, particularly the last 20 years, that the sheriff constitutionally is the highest law of the land, basically, right? Um, And so you can have sheriffs who refuse to particularly, and this is where it comes in most often, refuse to enforce gun control laws, right? Right. Um, And this is sort of, you've got a lot, you know, a lot of, some of this came, got sort of like mixed in with a lot of the election uh uh b- bullshit on the right where like you had a lot of sheriffs you know um there was a lot of concern as to how they would respond to uh states and and the federal government sort of enforcing you know, um, uh, or stopping, you know, the Trump administration from doing some certain things around the counting of votes. You know, there was a lot of real like concern about that. And I think this is something that is going to continue to be more and more of a problem because a lot of these sheriff's departments are completely out of fucking pocket, right? These are, And by the way, with sheriff's departments, not that being part of a police hierarchy in a traditional sense provides much restraint but sheriffs are completely fucking out there, right? Like they are. there are not, it does vary from state to state, but there's not any sort of like central requirement about like what it takes to be a sheriff or a sheriff's deputy. A lot of them are just dudes, right? Like that's right. why you had, it was either in New Mexico or Arizona, like a small sheriff's department basically selling to like celebrities, you can become a sheriff's deputy here, like work a week a year and then you can carry a concealed handgun wherever because cops get that right, you know? Right, right, like, yeah.
11: Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to be clear because what you're talking about and, and how it pertains to New Mexico is is both 100 percent correct. And yeah, has and has and has happened here. Um, it could happen here. But yeah. is. Uh, but in the case of this yes, yes. issue right I now, I bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Bernalillo County Sheriff took office this year. He is a Democrat. Yes. Um, he's a man of color. Uh, not, this is not me making excuses for cops, but I, just to be clear about this and he is generally disliked by the right and has been seen as, you know, whatever soft on crime and stuff, which he hates, um, and has tried, he's tried real hard to sort of buck that position. Um, and and so, and and that which which makes this all the maybe worse, right? That that yeah, a, yeah, a Democrat elected in a Democratic county with a you know the the city the the state's largest Democratic municipality, right? Like for that guy to be like, yeah, I'm not gonna not gonna do this, um, and and I also <laughs> there's something that needs to be said here. You you cited some great, well, tragic statistics about my state, um, and specifically about Albuquerque uh, earlier, and and this is a public health crisis, right? Gun yes, violence, ab- is absolutely. It, yeah, it's a- out again, of hand. W-
3: w- when you're seeing the number of homicides basically yeah. double, you know, right. in the space of a fucking year, that that is a that's a crisis. Something needs to be so, done, right? Right.
11: Yeah, right. and and so one of one of one of the big things that hasn't, I don't think, been said loud enough is that if if we you know you know if if we all agree that it is a crisis a 30-day ban is not gonna it's not gonna do anything and it's certainly not gonna address the root causes and i i actually very reluctantly have to hand it to the sheriff for his statements yesterday because as he put it um he has enough crime to deal with He's yeah. got enough going on that his deputies have to have to deal with right now to to then go and enforce this arbitrary rule or, you know, order. Uh, it's not a it's not a law. it's the uh, yeah. but you know what I mean. um so so that's another thing, right? Like this is you're you're we're dealing with a public health crisis by putting the impetus on law enforcement, which is the whole problem with, you know, the way that this country deals with. Um, you know, the 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 quote unquote drug problem. And and let's be very clear here. When the governor issued her order on Friday, she issued two orders. One uh, is called uh, the one with the one with dealing with guns is declaring state of public health emergency due to gun violence. But the, at the same time, she issued one saying declaring state of public health emergency due to drug abuse and. You know, for her, these things are related, yeah. uh, and and she's you know she's trying to tie them together. Um, and I think we all know that, given the last forty years of American history dealing with drugs via you know law enforcement, has not done anything to help the problem. And uh, and so that it just again, this is one of those things where it feels counterintuitive for a governor who. You know, generally, um, the Democrats of this state support uh, who has won by fairly large margins in both of her elections, um, and and has a, a democratic majority in her legislature. That, for her, then to um, issue this order and put more uh, requirements on her law enforcement that she's expecting to, yeah. you know, also then carry it just doesn't it doesn't make sense, right? And so that's where we're all. It's, um, scrambling.
3: It's it's there's a couple of things that fi- make this so dangerous. One is that it's this unnecessary own goal, right? You know, as you stated, this is not this, and and I didn't want to be a uh, sort of intimating that he was that this sheriff is not particularly tied in directly to some of these longer standing weird constitutional sheriff things, but it does tie into this this pattern of sort of conservatives backing sheriffs against. Uh, con- like state power and against federal power that they dislike, and in this case, one of the things that makes this so toxic is they have a point, right? This this order is not constitutional, and giving right. them ammunition like that is number one. It strengthens right wing organizing in a way that is you know dangerous, but also it's completely unnecessary. It's complete. It it, it does not address the problem, and the problem is. Is is very like extremely serious, and so I I find this kind of distracting from realistic solutions here, you know. Which which by the way can can you know probably do um to some extent involve restricting you know uh, the certain uh, uh, the ability of people to carry in certain situations to carry in certain ways in certain situations. I think
5: sure. one of I, the
3: yeah hmm. oh yeah yeah no no yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like,
11: well I was just gonna I just want to you know for. For folks interested in, you know, what New Mexico has done, um, things that have happened in the under this administration are there are there have been some advancements that as a gun owner, I support one was closing private sales as a thing. Um, You know, I grew up buying guns out of the backs of cars. Um, uh, Wild. I have some wild stories about that. Um, but that was a fully legal thing to do. We had private sure. sales in this in the state. I bought um, a lot of car guns. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it I, is fun, but we should probably, <laughs> probably that's not probably. Great. There should probably, be some. Probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, espe- and, and especially for those of us that don't have anything restricting us from buy- purchasing firearms, there's no reason to not just do- anyway. Yeah. So so that being said, so the New Mexico did did end private sales. Uh, so that's one thing. And then this last year um, we instituted it's not a full safe storage law, but it it goes a long way inst- into instituting a safe storage law. It specifically um, creates a situation where if a minor gets access to a gun that was not secured and then commits a crime with it, then the per- the owner of that firearm is then held liable. And it has been used now twice in two fairly high-profile tragic shootings um, in the state.
3: Oh, I should note here: a decent number of the recent spike in homicides have been children getting access to firearms owned by adults, either accidentally or purposefully using them to shoot and and kill people. Right? Yeah. So as, as you,
11: yeah, the law, the law is the law is called the Benny Hargrove Act, which was. Uh, named in in honor of a of a young man who was killed at a middle school by a fellow middle schooler uh, with a gun that the guy got off of you know that the kid got out of a a, you know a bedside drawer um and uh yeah and as again as a firearm owner like i'm sitting across from my safe right now i Uh I keep my guns locked up so there are there are practical solutions here yes and um and i know that this country has a hard time talking about guns without it getting (sighs) out of pocket very quickly um but there are practical solutions um we have you know one of the interesting responses from democratic lawmakers in the state over the last you know 3 days has been a call for a special session of our legislature to discuss what some of those things might be the trouble with that is that in the, everybody's got this like knee jerk thing and everybody wants to talk about crime i'm using big air quotes crime um and and which is in direct uh, counter, you know, counterance to the idea that this is a public health crisis. So, you know, we have a lot of reservations about what what might come out of a session like that. Um, we would have to do a lot of work to protect, you know, some of the things um, we've we've you know, we've done a lot to uh, protect people from the carceral system in this state, which is um, hella predatory. Um, and so those are protections we want to keep, you know, keep in place. But it's easy for the right, of course, to blame. Like, that's the reason the reason the reason why shootings have increased is because um, we let people who've been arrested for, um, you know, petty theft or something out of out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, that's why crime is up. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But um, anyway, so, you know, it's even even with the solutions come more problems. But um but yeah there does seem to be this the 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 unintended consequences of this order seem to be the the not just the backlash but then the sort of non-support from yeah. folks who would otherwise be supporting her so
3: I kind of want to close probably by talking about and by thank you for that by the way for that context for talking about what I think is the underlying, a big part of the underlying cause here that is also a big part of a surge in violence in a number of states nationwide, which is that like people are a lot of a significant chunk of this country has become unhinged since COVID. Um, I, I kind of suspect that has a lot to do with it, but you are seeing in a number of states a significant amount of like anti-social violence um, violence that occurs because somebody cuts somebody off in traffic somebody gets into an argument at a store you know somebody gets into an, an argument at a parking lot there have been a number of shootings as a result of this uh it's happened you know this is a big part of the rise in gun violence in Texas which is also tied I think to permitless carry to an extent but like it is broader than that too right this is not purely a a access to guns is why a lot of these crimes involve guns but there's just been this rise in anti-social social violence, a lot of which comes out of arguments or or perceived disrespect between one person and a group of people or two people or whatever. And I think this is probably tied into with a lot of the you know increase in political violence we've seen, because a decent amount of it does arise out of that. And this is part of what I I think is kind of disheartening about the governor's response here is that this is a very serious problem. And the kind of knee jerk reactions don't help it, but also like, I don't know what does, right? You can you can deal with aspects of this problem, right? Maybe if people aren't just able to throw a gun in their pants and and legally be carrying, there will be less of these shootings. But that doesn't deal with all of the underlying problem. And I I I, I don't really know what does this kind of like increased willingness of Americans to resort to violence in interpersonal conflicts is
11: a a real issue. Yeah, I oh man, you you said yeah. enough, there, Robert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. I think that um, you know, I I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking about um, the first time I was able to go to a, a school function of my daughter's after after uh, COVID orders were lifted and. I remember I was uh, was with a family member, and they were, you know, they were the commenting on sort of people's bad behavior in in the auditorium, and you know, and I had to remind them. I was like, you know, the these people have not been outside in, yeah. a, year, in a year and a half, <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know, and like specifically, like some of these little kids that are running around. They they maybe have never been to a function like this. You know what I mean? Like right. by the time by the time most three or four year olds have are, are going to, I don't know, like a baseball game or a band concert. You know, they've at some point it's the first time. But, you know, they get used to it. They start to understand the rules of things. Um, but yeah, like after, you know, if you grow up and you're all of a sudden you're five and you've never been to something like this, like you don't know you're supposed to sit down and be quiet and listen to the thing. Right. Like you're just no. used to sitting on your phone anyway. So, yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> agree with you. Um I think in New Mexico, we're not isolated from other states in the sense that we have a rise in uh, drug use and related crime. We're not isolated in the sense we have a rise in you know our houseless population, uh, in in lack of job or at least good jobs, um, and and all of those things come together to make life hard. You know, and when life is hard, it 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 impacts people and they make you know bad decisions. Um, The thing that I think does hurt New Mexico and 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 is maybe what makes New Mexico, unfortunately, sort of stand out from some of its issues is, um, you know, we are a very rural state. We have one fairly large city in Albuquerque, but even then um, the surrounding parts of Albuquerque, just like the rest of the state, are very rural Um, and there is a certain amount of. You know, we just as a state we are lacking resources and always have. You know, we rely so heavily on one industry, and uh, without without the systems in place to um, ensure that people have a place to live, or you know, a, a meal to get, a job to go to, um, recreation that they can afford, things like that. I mean it is tough. Um, it is just tough out there and I'm, I'm privileged and I get to, you know, I have, I'm, I'm raising my daughter in a home that, you know, we want for very little. Um, but I see it even in my, in my peer group, I see people who are struggling all the time yeah. and yeah, it's just tough out there, you know,
3: it is, it is. And I honestly, you know, um, New Mexico and Oregon are similar in a lot of ways and that, they are both very low population. I think we're both at around four million people, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, New Mexico's um, only like two million. Oh, you're two million, so yeah, even yeah. even less. So low-population states that have one big city that kind of dominates politics, uh, but a very conservative kind of rural area in a lot of ways outside of that. Yep. And in both cases, that urban area has seen recent massive spikes in in interpersonal violence and in um you know uh fatal issues due to drug use, right? Yeah. Um, now, one of the thing obviously one of the things Oregon has coming through it is because of all of the retirees and stuff here, like a much higher tax base, right? So there's theoretically more resources, although I tend to argue very incompetently applied. So most of those don't actually get out. But you do you do have this kind of this this is one of these places where this urban rural divide is 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 both a lot stricter and where this state that is the majority of the population um, and is dealing with such severe issues is also kind of the political center of, or this the city is
11: also the political center of the state. Um, well, yeah, that, and yeah. and just, yeah, you absolutely hit on something there. You know, Albuquerque has been historically, you know, decentralized th- due to gentrification for the last generation um, because of exactly what you said, which is that re- retirement community, you know, um, out, out outside of oil and gas and then the federal government yeah. in terms of like, the labs and the universities and things like that. Um like retirees are basically our third highest gener- you know, generative yeah. revenue. Um is probably in there too. But you know what you get what I'm saying. They're a very yeah. high portion. And yeah, and and you know the Albuquerque that I grew up going to visit all of my family in um and like going, you know, going downtown, going, you know, down to the international district, um, going near the university, you know, it never felt it never felt I hate to use the word dangerous, but it never felt dangerous, right? It never it never felt that way at all to me. Not that it not that I feel danger to my to my person, uh, as a, you know, as a white cishet dude with a beard, like walking around. Yeah. Like I usually feel pretty safe in my person, but um yeah, I can't say that I would I have reflect that from everybody that I know that lives there and, and people make choices about where they go, what time of day, et cetera, et cetera. And a big part of that is because of the gentrification that has pushed the the you know native population of Albuquerque out into these more rural places. It makes it harder to get to, um, you know, get to groceries, get to jobs, get to transportation. Um, yeah. All of those are factors in this. And it's and it's not just a one size fits all solution. Yeah. Well, Lucas, uh, is there anything else you wanted to get into today? Oh, I mean, there's always something. But no, this was this was great. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity. It's, um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a longtime listener of this show. And and when this issue came up, I I really was thinking about some of those topics you brought up, you know, way back in the the first run of it could happen here. And thinking about the that conflict that exists between state entities and, you know, passing laws and enforcing laws and who does that and who doesn't. And what does it mean if they don't?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this will continue to be, uh, a topic of, uh, <laughs> vibrant discussion. So I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll have you back in the very near future.
11: Yeah, um, yeah. Happy to come yeah. back for that.
3: Yep. Yep. All right, everybody. This is the, uh, this has been an episode of it could happen here, you know, go, go. Yeah. Lucas, you have any pluggables to plug before we roll out of here?
11: Uh yeah, sure. I mean, if you are interested, I'm on Twitter at Lucas Herndon and, um, If you're curious about, you know, New Mexico politics, uh, progress now New Mexico um, on all the socials.
3: Most excellent. All right, everybody. Uh, This has been an episode. Go home.
2: Mo'Play. play
12: Hello, everyone. It's me, James, uh, and I'm joined by Shireen and Robert today. We're going to be talking about the border, which is where that audio you heard at the start was recorded yesterday. Um, so hi, Shireen and Robert.
13: Hi, James and Robert. Hello,
12: James. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Shireen. It's, it's, it's <laughs> lovely to have this formal introduction time. Uh, okay, so yeah, we, we're gathered here today to talk about the border, and the reason we are talking about the border is because... Uh, border Patrol are doing their thing, the thing that they, they like to do, seemingly like on a quarterly basis, actually exactly uh, three months after the last time, which is to hold people out in the open in between the two border fences in San Isidro, um, just about 15 minutes south of where I live. The It's probably worth um, grounding this discussion in the various claims and counterclaims. So there are about 200 people in between the two border fences right now, people I spoke to were from Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Turkey, China, Vietnam, Honduras, yeah. Guatemala. Yeah, like uh, the reason that sometimes these lists of people sound like uh, you know, you're know you singing Washington Bullets it is because uh, these are all countries that we have destabilized in one way or another. I'm saying we qua yes. the United States, um, not we as cool zone media. We, we aspire to destabilize regimes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've only agreeable. destabilized two or three countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, and we're proud of it. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we don't. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. hide it. Um. By, yeah, by, uh, we we took our shot at Canada. You know. Mm-hmm.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we've
12: taken a good, good good couple of swings at the Tomador. I think we landed mm-hmm. some punches, but um, who knows? Time will tell. So yeah, it's people from like I think often the migration is is constructed as quote unquote Mexican, which is definitely not the case. I spoke to one family. Uh, from Mexico yesterday, but like, even if you look at border patrol statistics, um, about 4,000 out of 15,000 people apprehended in the San Diego sector in July of this year were of Mexican nationality. Wow.
13: That's lower than I would assume, to be honest.
12: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a number of things, right? Like, it's uh, these countries like, like climate change is definitely getting worse, so, so mm-hmm. migration is happening from there. I see a lot of people from Vietnam, um, mm. I don't have the language skills to speak to them in depth. Like I I was speaking to someone, and we'll get onto this through Google Translate from Vietnam, um, but hard to conduct a full interview, especially when folks are guarding their phone charge, which they Mm -hmm. are, because exactly the same as last time, they need the phone to do CBP1, they need the phone to interact with their families, let them know they're safe. Um, (laughs) Some of their families, I guess, don't know that they're traveling. Uh, I was helping people charge phones yesterday. so. we can talk, let's talk a little bit about mutual aid response and then we'll get on to the Border Patrol shenanigans. Um, so there are two groups down there right now. And I think it's very impressive the services they're able to provide because because Border Patrol claim these people are not detained. Mm-hmm. That means that they are therefore not obliged to provide any services to them. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So that would mean they don't have to give them water. They don't have to give them food. They don't have to give them shelter and or uh, like sanitation, which. Sanitation is the one that's really hard to cover because everything has to go through a fist size gap in the fence. Um, so that, that's still like a, an unmet need. But uh, these two groups, uh, Free Shit Collective, they're at Free Shit PB on uh, Twitter, and also um, American Friends Service Committee. I've spoken about them before. They're a Quaker group. Uh, they're really great, like in terms of turning up and helping people who need help. They're constantly there, and they uh, they're a good place to send your money even if you're not a Quaker yourself, like, like check out their Twitter. Like actually they probably align with a lot of people who listen to the show on a lot of things. Exactly. I think they're prison abolitionists. Um, so those two groups were there and they would, at first there was myself, one person from American Friends Service Committee and two older volunteers who would come uh, and about 150 to 200 people. So um, mostly I just kind of helped because I think in that situation it's more important to help than necessarily like get the best audio for your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, So we handed out water, handed out food, handed out those emergency survival blankets. um, And uh, that was about all we had at first, some like medical stuff, people who had medical. Uh, And a bit later, uh, free shit people came uh, and Xavier came. uh, I'm not sure what Xavier's org is, but I will tweet it when I find it. or I'll put it in the show notes too. Um, He's great. Uh, I've spoken at his events before that he holds down by the border. We had a border media round table. Um, he turned up with a massive generator. So that was great. We we're able to charge phones. And what's really, um, I think, like notable is how much the people in between the fences are able to participate in distribution of goods and helping each other. So like, they have a person who volunteers to be the coordinator for the water distribution and one who volunteers to coordinate for the um, organizing people into lines and making sure people don't cut the line, right? And then one person who was the phone captain who was doing like an incredible job of—they'd get the cell phone, right? Write the name of the person, and then assign them a number in the line. And that person would also have that name and number written on their hand, and it's written in duct tape that's taped to them and taped to the phone. And mm-hmm. then when their turn to charge comes, you should, he would shout the name of the number. They would come from wherever they were in between the walls. They'd come and we would charge the phone and then once it got above 50, 60%, we'd switch it out and he'd call them again and they come get their phone. Uh, so lots of that is stuff that was learned in may, and, and and has been like implemented again, much more like it's less chaotic than it was before. And and fewer people are able to provide better help, which is really good. Uh, that it doesn't mean that those people don't need like donations because they do. I know the free ship people came with dozens of blankets, but there weren't enough blankets for everybody. So, uh, we were prioritizing families with children and pregnant women um, to, to have a blanket. But it was cold yesterday. It was raining and, and people didn't have anything to shelter under. There were a few tarps, but not very many. And like, it's a pretty, like they were very young babies there, right? It's a pretty yeah. difficult place to sleep with. Like people were very keen to get their hands on cardboard boxes to lie down on to sleep. Like that gives you a sense of how kind of... uh underserved they are there's obviously no toilet facilities because you're just in a dusty kind of desert area um by the border so um if people are familiar with las americas the discount mall um we're like yeah. a, maybe a mile west of there uh, along the dirt road um and it's just just kind of dusty field uh, so very rocky very difficult for people to sleep very exposed to the elements right it was hot today like I was out earlier and it was 91, so they, they won't be having any shade today. They didn't have any shelter from the rain or ways to keep warm last night. and They're not allowed to start fires either, um, well, even if yeah. they have the means to do so. So um, the situation of these people, I think, is something worth discussing because it's not exactly super duper clear what role this plays in the immigration process um and there were a couple of examples to illustrate that so i was able to talk to one person um they presented themselves uh from like they, they came into the parking lot walking and they looked looked very concerned uh, and so i approached him and I was like, hey do you need anything can we help you and uh, they had experienced some kind of medical condition and, um, and, and been taken to hospital which but. a Customs and Border Protection will do that, right? Like if those people are there and they're having an emergency, they'll open the gate, take that person out uh, and uh, transport them to hospital somewhere in San Diego. Um, that person had then been released from hospital uh, to a taxi, which uh, hospitals in San Diego have a habit of doing this. Uh, they'll dump homeless people, right? If it is for you, anyone in San Diego will have seen this. You'll be familiar with like people dumped out of the hospital in Hillcrest wearing a hospital gown and, and maybe having very little other possessions. It, it's, every single day this happens. Um, unfortunately, people have passed away on being released by the hospital before in Hillcrest. Um, so they release these folks and I guess they often give them a bus pass or they pay for a taxi. In this case, they paid for this person's taxi. They asked for a taxi to the border. Their command of English was pretty limited. So they asked for a taxi to the border. Um, they were taken to like the formal border crossing at San Isidro, which is mile and a half... Uh, east of where we were, and then they walked down the dirt road to where we were, but obviously because there was a fence in between us and the people being caught, detained, then they weren't able to access that area, right? Um, so uh, that leaves them in a conundrum, right? They're, they're now in the United States like without uh, without any status. They were able to, one Border Patrol agent advised them to, to return to Mexico, obviously that will constitute an entry to Mexico in between ports of entry, right? You'd be illegally entering Mexico. Um, It's not Border Patrol's job to enforce Mexican laws, but uh, that person was in the United States and presented Mm -hmm. a claim for asylum, right? Um, They had a cell phone uh, and they were using Google Translate and they they, literally, I I could see it, it was like, I'm afraid to go back to my country. I'm afraid I'll be hurt if I go back there, which is like a pretty textbook asylum claim. Uh, I would like to claim asylum. Right. And, and on making that claim, a Border Patrol agent returned them to the area in between the fences. Right. Which would suggest that like this is a, a holding facility to Border Patrol um, for people. I just want to read uh, the statement that Border Patrol made to me this morning. Uh, this was like you know, a couple of hours from recording this, recording this on Tuesday. CBP has built and retrofitted facilities along the southwest border to enhance our capabilities in this regard. CBP has also significantly increased the number of medical personnel along the southwest border and those providing other wraparound services, all to better support ensuring getting people appropriate care as quickly as possible. Border Patrol has prioritised the quick transportation of migrants encountered in this environment, which is partially dangerous, particularly dangerous during current weather conditions, to Border Patrol facilities where individuals can receive medical care, food and water. It is important to note that migrants who are between the border barriers are not in border patrol custody, and are at liberty to return to Mexico if they desire. We have some audio of border patrol addressing the migrants in between defenses. So Daniel's going to drop in right after this.
6: Down as fast as we can.
7: We're just have
9: Listen, we take as soon as we can listen there's too many of you we can't do this fast enough the longer i sit here and talk to you the less time we have to take people so go sit down we're not designed to take hundreds of people we're working as fast as we can just be patient all i can
12: tell you this, they're shouting at them they're shouting at them in english um they're not really giving any clear. so what the, the people obviously have questions right they've entered mm-hmm. Lots of them have been given bracelets. When he's talking about the bracelets, um, and people will have heard that in the intro too, that they were taking people with white bracelets, those have a day, right? The day that you entered. Um, So like it it might say Monday or Sunday or today, obviously it's Tuesday. So they would get Mm -hmm. a bracelet, which has a color and a day. And they process people in order uh, of priority. So the people who arrived on Monday, first they'll process unaccompanied minors. I didn't see... Any, uh, obviously, like so some 18 year old people, it could be hard to tell how, how exactly how old they are, 17, whatever, but didn't see any people that young on their own. After that, they will process single uh, mothers with children. I uh, saw so a few of those, quite a few of those. After that, they will process like uh, like a, a family, which they define to consist of, of like a, a man, a woman and children. After that, they will process uh, men on their own. Um, I guess women on their own, then men on their own. Um, they had initially separated people. They had people just like they had last time, right? In in like families and those with children and then single men with somewhere else. But it seemed like people were able to come to travel in between the fences down to the place where I was because that was the only place that they were able to access services, right? Um, and I guess the claim of Border Patrol is that these people could go back to Mexico. I'm not sure how... Um, because obviously they're in between these thirty-foot walls, right? Um, right. You could go around the end. That's how people come north. Um, but but uh, that, that's quite a hike, especially if you haven't got any water and food and stuff. So yeah, it, it's this is what they've claimed. It's worth noting that like Border Patrol, um, a number of representatives from the the Hispanic Caucus like requested Border Patrol clarify this after what happened in May. Uh, In their letter, they noted that the conditions violate agency guidelines for detention, which they do, and that Border Patrol isn't supposed to hold people in its own custody for more than 72 hours, which some people were held for longer than that in May. Uh, And CBP responded, I'll just read it out. The individuals in question had not made contact with U.S. Border Patrol personnel and were not constrained from further movement. At the time of this incident, the U.S. Border Patrol San Diego sector facilities were experiencing capacity issues and some transportation challenges, which have since been remediated. Border Patrol agents encountered and apprehended these migrants as soon as it was operationally feasible to do so. Again, like they were dropped off in May by Border Patrol vehicles in the place where they were being detained. And and it's simply not factually correct to suggest that they had not come into contact with Border Patrol. Uh, I I have video of it. I've published video of it on Twitter. Uh, We've used audio of it on the podcast. It's just not true. Um, So Border Patrol essentially are are claiming that this isn't happening uh, when it continues to happen. right? And uh, this time they've taken that to it's like they've already doubled down on that status, I guess, because they're not providing any services, um, which is uh, probably a good time for us to hear from some products and services. Uh, (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) Fucking magic. Look at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Taking Mm -hmm. a victory lap. I'm quitting now. Uh, never podcast again. All right. Enjoy these adverts. Yeah, it's me. I'm back. Everyone else is still here too. Now we're talking about the mutual aid response to what's happening at the border, right? and um, As I said, Border Patrol aren't providing anything. And as I said, at least when I left, I left after it got dark, quite a long time after it got dark last night. I was there for probably seven, six or seven hours. And I saw more and more people arriving in that time. And it was a really wide uh, dispersed group of people. Like, like. It, I would say maybe the majority were Spanish speaking, but a lot of people were Vietnamese. I was speaking to uh, some Francophone African people of various nationalities right before I left. Uh, like I said, there are lots of people from like, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, places like that. Um, those those people were pretty prominent. So it's fairly hard for volunteers to communicate with all of them and they don't have any information right, about what's happening to them. Can they expect to be separated in some cases? They can. Uh, Can they expect, how long can they expect to be there? We don't really know, right? I heard one Border Patrol agent saying that some of the people who arrived on Monday could expect to be taken out maybe by Wednesday. So that's at least two hours, two days, right? So all of the services that are being provided, uh, they're being provided through mutual aid right now, which is exactly the same thing that happened last time, right? Sometimes Border Patrol last time gave them a granola bar, um, which I haven't. Come back with their granola bars this time. And I think it's really worth us like taking a moment to consider the scale of what like 200 people is not that many people, but it, it was more than 2,000 people in May. And that was provided for by mutual aid. And I think it's a really good like getting off point for maybe us to have a little talk here about uh, like how we do mutual aid because um, the only thing that enabled like little babies to have like a blanket is someone messaging someone else on signal and being like hey this is happening again do you have stuff can you come down and someone who i don't know weeks ago i guess was like oh these people are doing nice things let me send them some money and because without that those people would just be sleeping in the in the in the dust i think it's really uh it's it's admirable i think and it's something that like I don't know how to say this, um, that we should take into consideration when we're discussing things like religion and then like doing discourse. And, and like, it, it could be really easy to get like into like full Reddit atheist mode. Like I'm not a person who believes in, in religion particularly, but like I, the only people who are helping at some point are people yeah. who are at least part of religious organizations. Look, it's, I think that the,
3: the perfectly... Consistent stance to have is that, like, if someone is showing up and providing people with uh, necessary assistance and not not asking for anything in return, including the ability to proselytize, then I don't mm-hmm. give a shit what they're yeah. doing, right? Like, I don't care if they're from a church, I don't care if it's like, you know, like, uh, some, we- like, as long as they are showing up and helping people in desperate need and not demanding some sort of something from them, including, like, you know, them them listen to a, a spiel. I, I don't really, you know... Yeah. It, it could be a church. Who gives a fuck, right? Like, I'm glad they're there, you know? Yeah,
12: totally. It could be a church. There were mosques there last time. I, I'm sure. sure that there were, like, synagogues and Jewish groups. Yeah, and, and groups. fucking kudos to those people, right? Yeah. You know? Like, that's yeah. good. Glad they're there. Yeah. Uh, those, yeah, those people are doing anarchism, too, even if they wouldn't call it that or whatever, like... Uh, you know, the the more we can create networks that look after each other without trying to control each other, then the better of a place we make the world. And that's what those people are doing. And we should all celebrate that and support them however we can, I guess. And so as of today, there are still people there uh, and they still seem to be. Putting people in there. Um, I think it's not supposed to be too hot this week. Like we had triple-digit days last week. I think over the weekend was pretty hot. Yeah, it was. It was very hot over the weekend. So, like the possibility for this to get much worse is is still there, right? The possibility for people to get the 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 person I spoke to who had to go to hospital had become dehydrated. Like that's how they Mm. needed because you don't when people. Well, com- when we first, at least when I first got there, people were very hungry and very thirsty and like really desperate um, for for a drink of water because often they'd come from some of those other holding areas and like walked down because this was the only place where they could access stuff. And um, so, like, yeah, I guess the potential for this to turn into something as as sad and completely unnecessary as what happened in May is there again. Um,
13: yeah. So yeah. you mentioned that there's no shade, like no shaded mm-hmm. area. So when yeah. it's triple digits, like there are kids and babies and just everyone's outside.
12: Mm-hmm. Yes.
13: That is yeah. just, I mean, it's terrible regardless, but like that in particular, that's like brutal.
12: Yeah. I mean, I think it, I've shared these pictures with you guys before, but like in, in Hakumba in May, like people were making little kind of A-frames and lean-tos out, out of Ocetios and, and cacti and stuff, just trying yeah. to get out of this. Because they it was very hot then out there. Yeah. Um, but like, Even I remember, the photos
13: you sent recently, there's like a, there's a photo you sent with, with a child's hand like coming out of the, the, the fence and it made me emotional.
12: <laughs> yeah, it makes me emotional, honestly. Yeah. Like, I think I've said this before like in interviews and I, I did an interview with the Rory Peck Trust about this, but like, I would rather go somewhere dangerous and, and have dangerous things happen than like see a little kid have to be cold, not be yeah. able to help them or like, just be sad. Like, it, it's not a fun yeah. place for children. Yeah. And I don't know, that fucks me up in a way that, like, that's, yeah, I would, I would
3: so much rather be like physically uncomfortable or in danger than like <laughs> be in a perfectly safe place where you're watching kids suffer. Like, that's the rough thing. I've been to a lot of refugee camps and it's always like, you know, it, it, it's weird because I've also seen a lot of kids like in active combat zones and, don't take the wrong thing out of this, but like the, the kids who have been stuck in a camp with like no chance of ever getting out seem like more depressed in a lot of ways. than the kids who every day, you know, they're, they're in, you know, part of the city, even though like the city is a a dangerous place to be, they they're, they're moving around. They're usually doing stuff. Obviously it's a, a much more, a worse situation in a lot of ways, but like the degree to which being in this limbo messes with their heads and depresses mm-hmm. them and traumatizes them is, and again, I'm not saying like it's better for kids to be no. in an active war zone, but like it's... that is trauma as well. And I think in a lot of ways, an equivalent trauma, even though the, the yeah. danger to their body is less, the trauma they face being stuck in a place and and not having any idea what the future is and not having any mm-hmm. ability to influence it really, right? Yeah. Being you know these yeah. kids up at this fence are totally they have no control over their future or their lives, really
12: I think that's the really like it strips people of their agency, which is a really mm-hmm. degrading thing to do right like, You're forcing yeah. these people yeah they have they can do everything right like that that, yeah. that person presented every a perfect affirmative asylum claim, you know mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. And I think that's very hard, especially... I imagine it's very difficult. I'm not a parent, but I imagine that, like, if you are oh, a parent... Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just want your, your kids to have a safe place to grow up. And, like, I, I don't know. It, it's the first time I ever realized that I was having a trauma response, and it was not a good one, was in 2018 with the migrant caravan, um, when, like, I had been... There was one little child who I speak about a lot, but, like, she was obsessed with my hair. If, if people haven't seen pictures of me I have long hair um and like wanted to braid my hair every time I went there and so she'd come and she'd sit on my shoulders and I would just do shit uh, and she would braid my hair while I was you know handing out water bottles or, or you know talking to people doing what I could do and like I saw that girl every day for months right and, and I remember once coming back to a Christmas party and just wanting to fucking scream at everyone yeah. it's a juxtaposition from being seeing this little kid like deprived of so many things that children should have warmth and shelter and good food and a safe place to be and then going home you know 20 minute drive cr- across the border drive home and uh see people just like going about their lives it's it's a really challenging uh yeah. like duality I the th- we can't stop it right like it's not in our power to stop this but like and um, it is in our power. One of the things I hear people being like, it's like welcome to America. Like it's a pretty fucked up way to be welcome to America, right? But like, I like I'm an immigrant. My my arrival here was very different. Um, like Shireen, you you came here when you were younger, right?
13: I I was I didn't immigrate myself. I was born okay. here, a month mm-hmm. old, moved back okay. when my parents Good. immigrated. Yeah.
3: Oh, so okay. you yeah. you can be president. That's important.
13: Uh oh yes, mm-hmm. I can be president. Yeah. you can be yeah. president, yeah. Yeah. but
3: not James. Yeah. That which is which real. is good, which is good. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Glad you we've locked this down.
3: down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sh- but is Attorney General, Yeah. You know, that is <laughs> yeah. my goal for you, James.
12: Yeah, I can see. I'd really crush it in that role. Uh-huh. I do, do. I do love a good law. Um uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shireen mm-hmm. can take out Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. who is not You can, eligible. You can
3: be Shireen's
12: John Mitchell. <laughs> Wow. <laughs>
13: it's yeah, a fun, yeah.
3: fun little Watergate chip for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I... I,
12: I will be uh, hiding mm-hmm. Shireen's secret mm-hmm. meetings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm
3: hoping for Haldeman myself.
12: That's the...
3: Oh, that's the okay. guy to be. You know, mm.
12: I want to go back for, like, further than that. You know, like when presidents were chads and uh, like Roosevelt got <laughs> shot five times and sort of delivered a speech. speech. Like, uh, I can see Shireen having that kind of energy. Wow. Sure. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'll,
13: I'll uh, lean into we'll, that. Yeah, yeah, we're all
12: in on Shireen. <laughs> Maybe get a vest too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, please don't, <laughs> don't,
13: don't
3: shoot Shireen. I sh- I, I, a book was enough for Teddy Roosevelt. but yep. bullets have
12: changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Return. Uh, mm-hmm. the, no, uh, jokes aside, I came to America very differently from this, and like uh, I, I've recently became a citizen after a long time, um, and, and like it, you always feel very precarious when you live here and you're not. Um, so. I just went like it, one thing that I noticed was that so many of the folks down there, uh, at one point, all of us, at one point I didn't know, were also people who had come here themselves um, and like had different stories. And we talked about like another thing I think is really important, actually, it's like just because people are in a shitty situation doesn't mean that they are not like people. Like sometimes it can be really easy to be like, bottle of water, bye, bottle of water, here you go, bottle of right, water, cheers. Right. Like, so they just want to fucking talk to you and like how is your day or like what's your favorite football team like like that can be a really valuable way of being like look i understand that the government is treating you like shit right now and that's not with my consent like i yeah I, they want I,
13: human connection because they're not treated like humans so it's like nice yeah. to remember that's like oh I'm
12: like yeah totally like someone's like, seeing me Yes, exactly, and yeah. just being like, we are in community. Like, we are yeah. here to do whatever we can to make this a little bit less fucking barbaric. Like, I always think I should buy like soft toys for the kids. Uh, mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of money on soft toys for kids over the years. But um, I remember one time we cleared out a Costco <laughs> in T1 <laughs> and like had them all in the bed of a pickup truck, and they were like trying to fly out as we drove down the freeway. It was uh, it was a good time. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I think that common humanity is super important. Um, if people have language skills and they want to help, like you know, there are always organizations to help migrants. American Friends Service Committee is a really good one. I, I don't think they would care if you were not a person of faith. I think lots of the people helping out with them are not. They're just nice people. Um, so, and there are like, so
13: many languages, uh, apparently, that need translating. Like, it's not just Spanish. I think a lot of people assume it would just be like, I don't know Spanish, I, I'm not going to go. But it's so many other languages that would be helpful.
12: Yeah, like I I speak French uh and like I, I honestly spend as much time at the border speaking French as Spanish, uh I have like passable communication in Haitian Creole and then can sort of if some people speak like more formal French uh who are Haitian so I can speak to them, but yeah, I, I don't speak Tajik or Uzbek or, or Russian or Vietnamese. Um so like yeah, those people are therefore it's harder for them to access Solidarity, right, and to talk to people and to be seen. Like we can try our best with cell phone apps. Uh, the the person who had been taken to the hospital was Vietnamese and uh, was just doing a stalwart job of like. Obviously, they were to the north of the border, so among the volunteers, basically, and and we were using our phones to talk, and they were helping us distribute shit, right, and then helping explain to the Vietnamese people, hey. Like you have to be in this line if you want this, and this line if you want that, and, and like so that was nice, and and it's always like great to see like people empowered by that process. Like they're not just like asking for stuff; they're also helping get other people stuff, and I think that mm-hmm. that helps both parties. And so like, there's this means of like I guess like people call mutual aid solidarity, not charity, which I think that. Illustrates really well, you know, like all these people are there to be in solidarity with people who they consider to be members of their community, not, not to like gain some karmic reward or whatever. Like, um, yeah. pe- and I think that's a really laudable thing. It's something we should all participate in if we can. I understand that everyone's near the border, but like, yeah, we can't change this. Like, we're all supposed to vote for Joe Biden because he wouldn't be a piece of shit to migrants, and he's been a complete piece of shit to migrants uh, for the entirety of his time in office, and it, I sincerely believe he'll be a piece of shit to migrants if he is elected again so like, yeah we, you can't fucking change this by uh voting for someone i wish you could i wish it was that easy but like sadly it requires your active participation and um yeah i'm just constantly impressed by people who will like the people from free shit collective they bought their entire family right i sent them a message they were like yeah. We're on our way. What do you need? Blankets. Okay. We have like a hundred blankets and a generator. And uh, like within an hour, at least some of those people had a warmer place to sleep. Right yeah. Before that, I was giving out the blankets I had for camping in my truck, but I have like two sleeping bags in my truck. It's not enough. Um, so yeah, I think that's something we can all do in our own communities. But yeah, right now, again, uh, I guess Biden's administration are back on their bullshit at the border. And um it's important that people just pay attention to it, right? I guess you could write your Congress people, um, but they didn't do shit last time. They won't do shit this time. Uh, but it, people can show solidarity in any way or lend their language skills. I think now is a really important time to do that.
13: Yeah, it's just frustrating because um, the border in general just becomes like a political talking point, right? Like Biden uses it for his benefit and then it's like, I'll pick it up when I need it again.
12: <laughs>
7: yeah. <laughs> Whatever
13: it is. It's it's pretty infuriating.
12: It's fucking annoying. Yeah, it's incredibly infuriating for me to see, like, I guarantee, right? I was down there yesterday where no other media uh, folks will be there today. Folks who haven't been there since May will roll up again, right? Who haven't covered the border, who don't have a working knowledge of, uh, like, what's happened since Title 42, which is that apprehensions have dropped, by the way. Like, like, uh, travel across the border has got a lot lower since Title 42 which is what we were told that opposite of what every op-ed told us was going to happen um, because I know people maybe should not be writing about the border when they live in DC or New York um, but yeah Biden will come back to the border next time he gets attacked by Republicans on border stuff mm-hmm. a- and, and until then like these people will be treated as if they're numbers or as if they don't matter and like each of them has a story and a reason for being here and, and uh, yeah they're not just numbers they're they're all people uh, and every time someone dies trying to come to this country to be safe, it's a tragedy, and it's a preventable tragedy uh and it's one that the Democrats are just as complicit as the republicans in, yeah, and you know uh, we've spoken a lot about groups you can you can go to right like we spoke about border kindness uh we spoke about borderlands relief collect- relief collective, like there are a million and one ways to help I won't detail them all now but um yeah it's something that like we can't erase the like i feel genuinely ashamed every time i'm down there you know to be american now but uh it's just hard when people are like hey what's going to happen you have to be like well we don't know but like you might be separated from your family you might be detained they're probably going to take most of your clothes they might take your belt off you know you can wear one jacket one shirt your pants and your shoes they might take your shoelaces and then you just go into the fucking abyss of of processing, right? And it might be years till you get your court date and you might not have a right to work until then, but it might cost you 10, 12 grand to get a lawyer to represent you. How do you get that money? Fuck to I know. you know. Uh, and it, yeah, it, it's deep. I feel really ashamed. But uh, yeah, all we can do is just try and help however we can. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But- yeah, sorry that was really depressing wasn't <laughs> no, it? Uh, no, no, I, I no, no,
13: it's yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> that's the
3: uh, truth. I really yeah. admire that yeah.
13: instead of like kind of wallowing in the shame you're like I actually want to do something and it's okay that I yeah. feel shame that's valid. It's I, both things can be true. I can be helpful and I can also have perspective on it. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
12: th- yeah it helps to help. It helps me. It helps other people to yeah. feel active not like acted upon. And that's why folks on who are migrants want to also participate in migrant aid, right? Like even folks who are in between the wall right now, like organizing the the phone charging queue because it helps to not just feel acted upon and removed of agency. Like, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, do mutual aid if you can.
3: Yeah. Be nice. Yeah, be nice. Be nice. Fuck the border patrol. Mm-hmm. I think that that more or less covers
12: it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's our message. That's Shireen's presidential slogan.
13: Yes. That's my campaign. <laughs>
12: yeah.
13: <laughs> uh, I'll work on that. Okay. Yeah.
12: yeah. Bye, everyone. Okay.
2: Mo Play.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
4: It's, it's another union episode of It Could Happen Here, the podcast where we do a lot of things, but one of, one of, one of which is talking about unions, one of which is not doing great intros. Uh, it's Mia Mia Wong, and today I'm here to talk about a union and a strike and a bunch of other stuff. And with me to talk about this is Tyler Fellini, who is an organizer with Portland Jobs with Justice and also a former New Seasons worker, and Alex Gage, who's an organizer and store rep for the New Seasons Labor Union uh, shop in Arbor Lodge. Um, Yeah, both of you two, welcome to the show.
10: Yeah, thanks for having us.
14: Happy to be here.
4: Yeah, I'm glad, glad to talk with you two. So I guess before we get into the sort of current stuff, I wanted to talk a bit about how uh, how the certain new seasons uh, union was formed, and you know what what that sort of process looked like, and how it's been going since then?
14: yeah, I can speak to that. um so the uh, initial uh, unionizing effort started at the store that I was working at, seven corners, um and we actually the first conversation we had was. Uh, April 1st, the same day that Amazon Labor Union went public and won their election. Oh, cool. um, So there's like a really inspiring moment for us that spurred a conversation on the shop floor with a couple of coworkers, um, which quickly escalated to six of us meeting in a nearby coworkers' backyard. Uh, we talked about the issues and we were all hitting the same things, you know, like we were all upset with the attendance policy, um, the way that New Seasons was treating us and had been treating us during COVID. We we're also upset with our pay, which is obscene and does not keep up with the cost of living in Portland, Oregon, which is a very expensive city. Um, and so and we are also really upset with the um, health care that we have offered and how it's kind of deteriorated over the years, um, mm-hmm. especially for New Seasons as a company that has a lot of people who've been there for years. And so there were a lot of people who've seen just the downward decline. Um, so those early meetings went really well. We talked to co-workers on the floor. Um, discreetly and everybody was resonating with what we were saying. Um, We made a lot of progress really fast. Um, And then we had a meeting at uh, a local bar here in Portland, Workers Tap, um, which huge shout out to them. They are uh, an amazing space for a lot of uh, burgeoning uh, independent unions to have some of their early meetings. So we met there with uh, more members at our store, the Seven Corners location. Um, And I think we had like 30 people there, which is a huge turnout for a first yeah. showing of a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then from there, we moved pretty fast to getting uh, cards signed for uh, showing of interest. And so in less than two months, we were actually filing our petition with the NLRB, which is wow. really unheard of. Yeah, that's, yeah.
4: that's yeah. amazing. Especially for a
14: grocery store union, that is wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon as we went public, workers at all these other stores reached out to us our Instagram blew up. Uh, people were excited. but wanted to figure out how to do it at their store. Um, so we were kind of simultaneously trying to balance the plates of like keeping our store going and also helping other stores go. Um, and you know, by the end of the summer, we rolled into we had our election. I want to say in September. Um, and by the end of the summer, there were multiple stores that had gone public and announced. Um, and here we are. You know, it's barely been a year since our first election win. It's barely been a year since then, and we have. Over 900 members, almost 1,000 members in this very new union. That's incredible. That gets into another thing I'm interested
4: about, which is Portland, Portland's a city that has been in the last, I mean, I would say probably the last five years, but especially in, in like the last couple of years, it's been really, really active in terms of, in terms of union organizing, in terms of sort of, especially, especially independent unions. There's been an enormous number of them. The, the actual number of workers being organized is really high. And yeah, I mean, you, you you talked about having like having this bar as a sort of uh, space so you could do meetings. Um, has there been any other stuff? I mean, from from other independent unions, from other, I mean, just from the fact that there's so many like things happening that have like changed the dynamics of how these union organization drives have been going.
14: Um, yeah. So early on. Uh you know, we were weighing our options as far as like, did we want to join an existing union or go independent? Like, what did we want to do there? And um, a lot of that information is hard to find if you don't know the language um, that you're looking for. It's not really accessible to the average worker, Um, but we found a lot of solidarity in uh, folks who had been involved in other independent union efforts. Um, Specifically, we met with uh, Mark and Luis at uh, Burgerville Workers Union. They offered, a yeah, they're great. They were some of the early folks to reach out and help us. Um, We were also able to talk to some of the folks at ILWU Local 5 uh, that represents PALS workers and many others um, and get some support there. Um, Portland is definitely a labor town, uh, and the solidarity that we felt kind of across the board was great, you know, especially like early on when we had a lot of questions and we didn't have any answers and we didn't have many resources to, you know, hire a lawyer and ask them. uh, So. I want. I wanted to go back a little bit to talk
4: about sort of the influence of um, the 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 sort of influence of the news about uh, the Amazon labor union uh, uh, going wide and how that sort of worked. Uh, have 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 you seen a sort of similar thing with other uh, like not just sort of not not just New Seasons uh, shops, but have you, have you seen other shops
14: that sort of like decided to start organizing after y'all came out? I think that there is. Uh- a general energy among the rank and file, right? Um, That uh, some of the old ways that unions are organizing um, were not the most representative of the workers, which is in part, you know, the the 80s, right? And so kind of why we've seen sort of union representation stagnant. um, But we're seeing a major shift, right? We've got a lot of educated workers doing low-wage jobs, um, which that condition existed in the 1930s and led to a major explosion in militant unions. Um, so I think there's a major parallel there. Um, and it's not just Amazon labor unions, also, you know, the Starbucks Workers United yeah, that campaign you know. was huge, right? Um, and those are workers who service workers, restaurant workers historically have been left out of labor um or underrepresented, similar to uh healthcare workers uh and just care workers generally. Um, and that I think is kind of the stereotype of like the working class as like a trad white guy in a factory. Um and yeah. we're seeing that. Severely upended right now, which is really exciting.
4: Yeah, but this is that's a that's another dynamic that I think is really is really interesting, particularly in Portland, is that it seems to be a lot of independent unions and it seems to be I I think partially because even even in the midst of the fact that like very clearly people want to organize, there's been a lot of conservatism on the part of the sort of like larger existing unions. You don't really want to like throw an enormous amount of money into these organizing drives, which means you know, if, if, if this stuff is going to happen, it's, it's, it it's the independent unions. Um, And yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think, I, I think your point about sort of, I think your point about the sort of both, both the highly educated workers thing and the way that, you know, sort of what's constitutionally considered a worker and what unions are willing to sort of throw money at are tied together because yeah, I mean, you know, like the shops that you're working in, Shops are getting organized just aren't the kind of thing that anyone's been organizing for, like, ever. At the very least, not since, like, the 80s. Yeah,
10: and I think it makes sense why they don't organize. It's freaking hard. It's a lot of work, and there's a lot of turnover, and you don't see those same faces. That's why we can get from... Uh, having our first meeting to filing for election in two months because if it doesn't happen in two months it's never going to happen and we get it done we get it done fast and then we see all these other like uh, as a grocery store we get deliveries from um, bigger union you know drivers and such and we've seen what's happened with their campaigns where if they're not like Totally invested. The they can get decertified within a matter of weeks, but we haven't had any of that yet.
4: Yeah, which which is really impressive. And you know, that's another thing I'm interested. In. I've been asking a lot of people because turnover is one of the big things that's been sort of you know it's it, it, it's been the wall that the existing units hit, and we're like, this is too hard. We're going to go do something else, and. I've been. I'm wondering how y'all have been dealing with the turnover problem because it's. I mean, it, it is definitely something that's difficult to deal with. But you know, it's 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 not something that makes it impossible. It's just hard. And I'm interested. Yeah, I'm interested in what your sort of strategies to uh, manage it have been.
10: I think it's a matter of passion. I think Tyler is a great example. Like, is no longer a member but sees this as like the way that we can move our society forward in general. Like the labor struggle is the struggle. Like mm-hmm. there's no war, black class war. If we don't do this, what are we doing here? So we, we stick around and we're doing this for free. We're not getting paid for it. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do.
14: Um, When uh, Arbor Lodge and Grant Park had their walkouts on Labor Day weekend, there was a customer at Grant Park who called out to us that, you know, we should just go open up our own workers co-op. Um, and my response to him was that, you know, if we leave, there's just another batch of workers that are going to go through these conditions. Like the goal is not that like, I want it to be great for me. Like I don't even work in New Seasons anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be great for my former coworkers who are still there and for the people that I don't know who are going to come behind them. And that's, that's how you get around the high turnover pieces, like the passion and dedication and, the drive to make conditions better for the people coming after you which is really uh antagonistic to the way capitalism wants us to be very individual like oriented right like we just care about ourselves and our day-to-day um but that's the really great thing with like the worker power right is that you know collectively we are so much stronger collectively we can actually stand up to the boss and win right and and that means just reorienting how we think about the world right like like this job sucks how can i make this job better i can just quit and go get a better job but if i change this job then the people who are still here also get better working conditions
4: yeah and i think that there's kind of there's a there's a kind of flip side of that too right which is that you know even if you like you know like turnover just is inevitable to some extent, even, even if you have people who like want to stay and fight, right? Like people are just going to have to leave. But on the other hand, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in a unionized workplace and if you're specifically, if you're, if you're in, if you're in a uh, union that has a sort of militant culture, what you're doing is you're, you know, you're changing the actual like class itself, right? Because, you know, like now, now your worker who like, you know, I don't know, is moving to Arizona or something, right? They are, they are, they are now also much more militant and have, have this sort of experience of organizing, that they may that they may not have had before. And this, you know, it's like you're the any 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 individual movement you're doing in one place is is building up the entire class.
10: Yeah, and we can see that we've like been attracting people who are interested and becoming involved in a movement and you know whether they just graduated from college or they had some sort of distant relative who was in a union they come to new seasons thinking, Oh, I want to get in on the beginning of this. And we've seen like a a big push of that recently and people who leave, they want to go, you know, organize their next workplace, you know, regardless if they were fired or whatever, they, they want to keep it going.
7: So,
14: and I think to build on that too, um, you know, salting is a practice that uh, traditional unions typically do to kind of change a workforce. Um, and when you salt, usually you're paid by the union to go in there. And so you're getting paid by the employer to be there and the union is paying you to organize. But we've seen a shift now where people are voluntarily salting, right? People yeah. come like out there to get a job. They don't need the money motivator. They just want to fuck shit up, right? They want to change things and like be antagonistic towards the boss. And I think to Mia, to go back to an earlier thing you asked about, like, kind of like why Portland, right? Like, I think one thing about Portland is. Um, people in Portland love a protest, right? Like we don't need yeah. <laughs> much of a motivation to go throw some rocks at cops, right? That's kind of in the culture of Portland, mm-hmm. and so there is this this orientation towards struggle that does exist. And right now, that energy, you know, we we went through the George Floyd uprising, um, and a lot of that energy has been funneled into labor, um, and it's been new voices in labor. It's not the same like you know ten yeah. people now kind of talking. It's all of this new energy, um, and for the most part most of Portland labor is being very accommodating and making room for those people to get in there and be heard because folks recognize that they're on their way out, right? You know, folks in their fifties or sixties, like they're, they're towards retirement. Right. And so it's us younger folks coming in that are going to change it, you know?
4: Yeah. And I I think there's an interesting dynamic with this too, which is that, you know, okay, one of the, one of the sort of conditions of Of the last sort of like 40 50 years of capitalism like is is this sort of high turnover rates and also is this you know is is this thing where you are like you as an individual worker are shifting jobs really really quickly and that you know that's in some sense an issue but that also means that like i don't know like if if you have a bunch of people who you know spent like (laughs) spent 100 days fighting the feds And, you know, still, still may like have, have, have developed just like the sort of militant hatred of the cops and, you know, I've developed sort of an anti-capitalist politics. Yeah. You get, you get more of the sort of salt stuff you're talking about because like, you know, screw it. Like you, you know, if you're, if if you're, if you're going to be working like a shit job anyways, you might as well like go work one where you're salting and starting a union because there's not actually like, I don't know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not like you're like getting career advancement in the service job. Right. And yeah, I mean, that seems to be driving like at least some of the sort of of how this kind of like how the independent union union organizing in Portland's been moving.
10: Yeah, I think I'd also like to point out, though, that like a lot of people uh, for our union specifically, new seasons has always been like the progressive business and it's always had a reputation of like being a great place to work they're really inclusive or whatever um so that's what attracts like a certain crowd of people and when they Mm -hmm. get there and they realize that like they're getting screwed over just like any other place that they've ever been at that that, like fosters this new feeling of like well I'm vulnerable no matter what I do like there's nowhere I can turn to trust my employer and how do I preserve what little dignity that I do have at this workplace because generally speaking like our jobs are pretty okay minus like the corporate business side of things like most people enjoy going to work. Uh maybe, but they <laughs> they want to enjoy going to work. So having that like kind of double-edged sword has um been a catalyst for us.
14: To just build on what Alex said too, I think it's really interesting that a lot of the the surge in uh new like independent union stuff has been, you know. Uh, New Seasons, Starbucks, uh, mm-hmm. to a degree, uh, REI, Trader Joe's, all these places, these progressive workplaces, right? And what's happened is that um, so often we've had interactions with customers where they go, wow, I assumed that the prices were so high because your wages were high. And we're like, dude, like, <laughs> I can, I, most of us can't afford to live in the city, right? Most of us are using public yeah, transportation. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and it's just not, it's not true, right? And so you know, it's workers who get jobs at these progressive places that drank the similar social Kool-Aid that the customers drank, of, assuming mm-hmm. that these businesses have good business practices. And what's happening is that they're just getting greedy, right? This is the case everywhere. It just hits a little bit different when your employer pretends you're friends and then stabs you in the back.
4: Yeah. Not not all workplaces have this kind of like, oh, we're like progressive sort of vibes thing. But I, I feel like businesses that have that reputation are also more just more vulnerable. It's not just that like their workers... Um, like realize how hypocritical it is it means that they're it means that they're more vulnerable to sort of like damage to their reputation when people find out that like oh my god hold on you're making how much money like <laughs> yeah and i think yeah i don't know I'm, I'm interested like how how effective has that been for you sort of like
14: leveraging that i think it's been really effective i mean you know and not just us i think a really good example of exactly what we we're talking about right is the shareholders of Starbucks are holding Howard Schultz accountable because he is wrecking that company right and so um with new seasons what it means is that they play a very sneaky game they fight us in the back room they make sure mm-hmm. it's not public facing yeah, anything we yeah, can right. do to attack their public image like it hurts um i will say too that you know we're kind of standing on the shoulders of burgerville workers union here yeah. where burgerville was built on this reputation of like local friendly like we're the alternative to like corporate fast food Um, and they had uh, security guards and strike busters literally fighting with picketers in the past and it tanked their reputation. And so new seasons management has clearly looked at what Burgerville management did and been like, we're not going to do that. Um, It doesn't stop them from being shitty. They're just, they're more polite when they're shitty to us. They're still just as shitty. They're just, they smile while they stab us in the back.
4: Yeah. So on the subject of of stabbing us in the back. So, there's been a bunch of stuff going on recently. I was wondering if you could talk about like the re <laughs> I don't know, the recent unrest? Question mark. Need to figure out a better way to phrase this, but yeah.
10: Yeah, so yeah, we've been building up. We have I mean, since day one of bargaining, which started back in like December or January. It um
14: It started in January.
10: Yeah, uh so we we've known that eventually it's going to get to a point where we're going to need to show some force. So, you know, we go in there with good faith and little by little, we find out that the the smallest ask is going to be impossible. And we find out that they're going to do whatever they can get away with every time they can. So they started with, um, I mean, they did all kinds of things, but the 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 one catalyst is they changed the attendance policy um, for non union workers and non union stores um, to make it more lenient. Which was one of the issues that we campaigned on was the attendance mm-hmm. policy because it's ridiculous and people get fired all the time. So uh, we demanded to bargain. Uh, They didn't have a response. We brought it up in bargaining at the bargaining table. They said uh, that they would work on something that we could implement before we ratify the contract. But they had to put it through their DEI lens. And they had to. um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all the things that corporations say to just delay it and kick the can down the road. So we're. Dylan good faith saying like, okay, you know, go ahead. So then we did a, a petition where all the stores um, individually had people sign a petition. We got hundreds of signatures. And then we did a march on the boss um, asking them to sign this MOU, that a memorandum of understanding saying you will give us, that same policy we filed a ulp uh saying like this is illegal it's obvious discrimination and then they uh just kept saying okay we're working on it we're working on it we're working on it so they never did then we did a rally and we showed up at the the headquarters uh with I don't know, probably 200 of us. Hell yeah. And marched up to the office and chanted and made a scene and told them they have one more chance to sign the MOU. They didn't sign it. Uh, So then we organized the strikes at the two stores and gave them one more chance to sign the (laughs) mou they didn't sign it we already knew they weren't going to so yeah we shut down those stores for the rest of uh the day at grant park and for one hour at arbor lodge and it was powerful we had a lot of support a lot of people showed up
14: yeah um and to to build on that too um you know, there's things coming up uh, that we, we can't talk about yet. But I would say that, um Alex, do you want to talk about the practice picketing? I feel like we could talk about um, that.
10: Okay, so we actually can talk about we just filed a <sighs> ULP yeah, last night for bad faith bargaining.
4: Yeah, ULP is an unfair labor practice.
10: Yes, thank you. I get caught up in the jargon. So we just filed that last night for bad faith bargaining. Yep. Because they gave us the most ridiculous policy for attendance. It's basically regressive bargaining, which is totally unfair.
14: Yeah, do you, do you want to explain what that is? Basically, uh the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, they oversee unions and the relationship between unions and employers. Um they demand that both sides come in good faith. Um basically, like don't screw around, don't waste each other's time. Um, the goal is to move towards some sort of compromise and an agreement um and uh regressive bargaining is when you backpedal and you offer something that is worse than what was offered uh the attendance policy is in my opinion definitely worse uh it is no better um i think it frankly takes the shittiest things of the past two policies and puts them together so it seems pretty clear to us that it's regressive um, and that we can argue that new seasons is not acting in good faith they are acting in bad faith um, which is illegal, according to the NLRB. And so what we are allowed to do is file an unfair labor practice, um, which basically, you know, it doesn't hold a lot of weight um materially. However, symbolically, it looks really bad. And so, yeah, again, going back to like Mia, what you were saying about kind of like their image, right? Like uh, these kind of progressive corporations, they don't want to look, like the the bastards they are um and a ulp makes it pretty clear hey this person's being a jerk this company's being a jerk so the more ulps that we get filed that like we win on the bigger case we can paint that new seasons is actually being really unfair to us
10: yeah so then um based on that um we're getting strike ready we're making sure everybody can show up and be um ready to assert our stance uh we're not gonna just lay back and let them take over (laughs) so we're gonna do some practice pickets and i'm sure you've been hearing that a lot which is great for i mean and if you want to bring it back to like the higher turnover rate and like you know the general apathy that you see in any union um People are just kind of afraid to be active. So, we're looking at practice pickets as a way to get people involved in a really low risk um, activity.
4: Can you explain how that works? Yeah.
10: Yeah. So, what we're going to do is each store will do a picket, but that picket will not be a strike. That picket will not um, encourage shoppers to leave or discourage shopping in any way um we're not calling for a boycott we're just simply doing logistically what does it look like if we do a picket at each store in the most peaceful way possible and then we do that at every store and we kind of gauge like you know how ready are we
14: And by doing that, too, uh, it's a show of force to the company, right? Yeah, it's not. We're not doing anything illegal. It's effectively an informational picket. So legally, there's nothing that New Seasons can do to any of the workers that participate in it. However, they will absolutely see that we are prepared to do it. Um, The Teamsters recently did this uh, for UPS. Um, A lot of teachers unions have done similar things. Yeah, it's a really good show of force to kind of leverage your people power and show the management that you're ready.
4: Yeah, and it has another it has another effect too, which is something that, you know, the 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 kind of basic cultural understanding of, you know, what unions are, how they function, what you need to be doing in any given scenario, like I mean, just physically how to like do pickets, what you logistically need to do, that stuff has all sort of faded from like the height of union sort of culture in like the sixties and seventies. And that's something that you have to rebuild. Because, you know, and 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 this is this is something that's both both in terms of the people in the union, that sort of knowledge, institutional knowledge has to be rebuilt. And it also has to be rebuilt in the public because people sort of just don't, you know, like your support for unions is really high, uh, but people don't understand exactly what like, you know, people, people don't understand exactly what a union is doing at any given time or like how it functions and things like that. And, you know, th- then this is this seems like a really good way to like. You know, like hey, this is a picket. this is what happens when there's a picket. this is an informational picket. we're gonna give you information and yeah, so it, it seems like a good thing for building up that kind of culture on both
14: ends and it's a really good opportunity to, to talk to customers, yeah. um, get them involved. Um, that's the thing is that you know uh, new seasons kind of tagline is the friendliest store in town. mean um, the way that they built that yeah the way that they built that reputation though was by really encouraging uh, workers to develop deep relationships with customers. Um, and so we're using that to leverage against the company now and saying like, Hey, like, you know, you like me, like, you know, me by name. And I know you by name, you don't know the CEO by name. Like, Mm -hmm. let's talk, let's talk about like what we're asking for and what you as a customer can do to support us, um, in a way that doesn't feel antagonistic, right? Like, like when we had the, when we had the walkouts on Labor Day weekend, um, You know, we did a debrief and we were kind of like, how do we like, how do we engage with people where we can hold on to our values and still feel like we're being effective? And uh, Randy, uh, a worker at Arbor Lodge, his solution, instead of calling people who cross the picket line scabs and like, you know, harassing them that way, you know, he was like, I just said like, hey, I'm disappointed in you. And I think that like, like, yeah, like, let's just like, we're going to just like, if you're going to cross the picket line, I don't need to hurl insults at you. I'm just going to guilt trip you and let you know that like, (laughs) I'm disappointed in you. And like, you will feel bad as you're shopping. Um, And I think that like, that's sort of how we can align the progressive values that attracted people to new seasons to work there in the first place with how we do actions while still being militant, right? We don't want to be soft. We just got to make sure that like, it vibes with what we're about, you know?
4: yeah and and that's that's another you know i think this this also gets back to the sort of culture part of it which is like yeah like re rebuilding the standard of do not cross a picket line is a thing that act that has to be done because that's again that's another thing that has sort of faded and yeah like guilt tripping people is a good way to do it because yeah you know like sort of especially especially sort of like middle and upper middle class progressive people like Really, really, their a lot of their politics is about wanting to feel good about themselves, and you know, (laughs) making making. Well, I think if they can
10: see, yeah, I think if they can see themselves in us too, they will relate, and they they won't want to go against their own values, which is our values, because that's the culture of Portland, generally speaking.
4: Did you have anything else that you want to make sure to get in before we wrap up?
10: Um yeah, we uh, would love to push our GoFundMe. Yeah, yeah. That can be found at our website, which is really hard to find.
4: Is it SLU.org?
10: It is, but yeah, you have to type it in. You can't just Google it.
4: Okay. Well yeah. uh, we'll we'll put it we'll just we'll just put a link to it in the um show okay, cool. notes. We'll okay, yeah, to perfect. The, uh, yeah.
10: Yeah, if anybody, you know, we're out here being an independent union. We have no money. Uh, we're just looking for maybe some sort of strike fund for those in need when we uh, are strike ready. And also, you know, materials, whatever people can donate would be amazing.
14: Final notes I would say too is that, you know, um, when we started this, uh, I mean, we're an independent union of grocery workers, right? Uh, we did all of this in our volunteer time. None of us are lawyers, uh, None of a lot of us had never been in a union before um, or had very limited experience. Um, we built this all from the ground up uh, with tons of volunteer hours of our own time after work. Um, and we have gone toe to toe with Ogletree Deacons, who is one of the largest uh, anti-union law firms in the country, that's who New Seasons has uh, retained. We've gone toe to toe with them, um, we have a lawyer now uh, who is really graciously kind of letting us write her an IOU for the time being? Um, <laughs> but even before her, we were we were still able to hold our own against a major uh, anti union law firm. Right, uh, there is power in workers coming together collectively. Um, it's not as easy as it should be to find that information, but it is out there, um, and there are people who want to share it. And I would say that like. Uh for me, the labor movement has been a really empowering place to come into. You know, I, I have a lot of experience with sort of like leftist like street activism. Um, but um I think that for anybody who wants to be involved in the struggle and is also like looking for ways to make inroads and develop community, like labor is where it's at, right? I mean, we we all work and to a degree, we all hate our jobs and have something to complain about. And like that's a commonality that stretches across uh the aisle uh, and allows for a lot of solidarity in a way that uh the culture war uh really doesn't want um and really like you know it's by design right the the capitalists want us fighting against each other um and the labor movement is a way for the working class to unite um because it's it's about class war you know
10: yeah here here
14: yeah and you know and this
4: this should go without saying i'm going to say it anyways you also, listener at home, can do this too. There is, you know, there, 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 there is nothing sort of magical or special about the people who do union organizing, other than the fact that they decide to organize a union. So you can do this too. You can form an independent union, and yeah, you can go hand your bosses a fucking ass and get better, you know, get better working conditions and get better
14: things for you and your entire class in the process. Yeah, um, I would say Labor Notes is a great resource for early information. Uh, The coalition of independent unions is on Instagram and workers from around the country have reached out to them for advice. Um, You know, we're on Instagram. You can ask us questions, Uh, reach out to independent unions and ask them questions. This is a labor movement made up of the workers for the workers. We want more workers to organize.
4: Yeah. And I I think on that note, yeah, this this is this has been Naked Happen here. uh, Go into the world and fight.
10: Yeah. Thank you.
14: Thank you so much,
4: Mia. Hey, we'll be back Monday with
3: more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
1: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
2: Zumo Zumo Play.